Welcome, everyone, to this latest edition of the Not So Common Podcast. I'm Pat Contry, and this week, my guest is Jason Lindsay, otherwise known online as Metal Jesus Rocks. How you doing, Jason? I am doing well, and it's it's weird for people to use my last name. It's it's most people don't know that. <laughs> was that supposed to be private? I no. looked it up online. It was it's public information. No, but it, it's it's funny because uh, I'll do podcasts, and people are like, should I call you Jason or? Uh, Mr. Jesus, or how about just metal, you know? Mr. Jesus. So <laughs> yeah. you've been you've been on YouTube since 2006. You got more serious in 2010. You do, uh, basically you're into the retro gaming scene, as, a, as am I. You do buying guides, you do top tens uh, for console games, you do hidden gems, you do game room tours. You, you do a, a lot uh, on, on YouTube. You're very diversified, which we'll get into. But why don't you tell me how you first started out in get, getting serious on YouTube? Yeah, so uh, it, it, I think it, like a lot of people, you have that moment where you just kind of see other people and you get inspired. And so for me, uh, I, I definitely saw people like Happy Console Gamer and Game Straighty One, and I liked what they're doing, but I also wanted to do my own spin on it. And so that was part of it. And also, too, I've always been a video and audio guy. So um, I've always done home movies. Uh, you know, since I've been in high school. Um, and then also I went to the University of Washington for audio production. I've actually worked in a, in a real video and audio recording studio. And so when it came time for me to do YouTube, I was like, oh, well, I've already got experience with Pro Tools. At the time I was using Sony Vegas, um, you know, Premiere, Final Cut, all that stuff. So that was easy for me to make the transition because I knew how that process works, microphones, all that sort of stuff. So it was just like, hey, YouTube, maybe I could do this for real. So, so once I did that in 2010, I was like, I know what it takes to be successful. Like you can't just do it part time or kind of willy nilly. And so I basically made it as a second job. I was like, okay, if I'm going to do this, it's one video a week, no exceptions, no excuses. So at the time, uh, were you still doing AV work on the side then for your quote unquote real job or full time job? No, at that time. 2010. I might have either been working for my wife, who's a real estate agent, uh, running around showing people houses, or I'm trying to remember. Or I, I was in IT help desk, and so I've I've been doing customer service IT help desk for an awful long time. Um, pretty much starting at Sierra. Well, that's not true. At Sierra, I actually had a couple different jobs, but um, but anyways. And so yeah, so I you know during the day I'd be helping people. You know, I can't find any of my Excel files or my. My monitor doesn't work right, that sort of stuff, fixing people's computers. <laughs> was that directly for Microsoft, being in the Seattle area? Um, you mean as far as, oh, you mean like working for Microsoft? Yeah, the help desk stuff. Oh, no. I, I didn't, I've never actually worked for Microsoft, uh, even though I've obviously, for many, many decades, I've supported their products. But um, actually, at that point, I was probably working for a real estate company, but again, for their IT help desk department. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so a lot of real estate people who are doing marketing stuff and accounting people and, and I don't know where my files went. Where I, I didn't do anything. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know where they went. <laughs> do I have a virus? Yeah. <laughs> What's going on? Oh, man. You know, we're, talk, we're, we're talking like, um, especially if you're doing that in the 90s when, when consumers uh, first mass consumerism meeting the computer market and then now you have a whole new generation or two of people facing you know the modern age so to speak of computers and pc 
uh, you know, sleuthing and figuring out what's an OS and oh. how do I how do I empty my recycle bin? I can imagine the oh. horror show of that at the time. Well, you know, it's funny you, know? you mention that because <laughs> you know, in in the '80s. I'm kind of self-taught, so I had a Commodore 64, taught myself how to program basic, and then in the 90s, obviously working at Sierra, pumping out video games for DOS and all that sort of stuff. But I always thought that that people would would grow into know how computers work. Like I thought, oh, you know, at the time I was like, okay, I'm kind of unusual. I know the difference between RAM and ROM and a hard drive. And, but I mm-hmm. thought, okay, well, in the future, everyone's going to know. And it's funny because nowadays I realize that, wow, like nobody knows. You know what I mean? It's, it's actually – they've gotten easier. And, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm just saying that I didn't anticipate the apples of the world where, hey, we're going to take away buttons on your mouse and we're going to – you're going to be – We're going to hide, yeah. hide system files yes. from you so you can't screw things up yes. and destroy them. Well, in, in, <laughs> in many ways, it's very much like the car. You know, I mean how many people drive around every day – not not understanding a lick about how a combustion engine works, you know, mm-hmm. and they don't need to. So it's interesting. Let's uh, I guess let's go back because I, I'm of a similar ilk, uh, I believe, then because I grew up with an IBM XT that my parents bought when I was like four and a half or five. So in the same way, if I want to play a game, yeah, I had to learn how to use DOS. Yeah. I had to learn how to use commands. Commi- <laughs> yeah. Boot disk, command lines, you know, uh, this is when you're five or six. You have to force yourself to learn how to do that, even if you're yeah. writing down the instructions. You know, go into basic. Some games were executable. Some were BAT files. Some are yeah. EXEs. Or you had to go into basic. You had that dreaded .bas, you know, extension. So you had to somehow learn how to boot up into basic, load that game, and, and play what were usually very, uh, pun intended, basic games. And right. for for the most part, they were worse. But that yeah, you had to learn uh, how to differentiate. I remember there was one game, uh, the Navy SEALs game that was on a three three and a half, three and a half inch floppy disk out there for those out there who are not familiar with what these things are, these terms that Jason and I will use. And I remember it, there wasn't enough. enough um, was it high access RAM? I think it was. Yeah. Pr- uh, well, back then you had conventional uh, memory and you have yeah. had, uh, extended memory. Extended, or, or yeah. Expanded, extended, yeah. So I remember asking my dad, "Hey, Dad, the instructions tell you how to unlock the, the you know, all the extended, the extended uh, RAM on here." So he had to spend one night reading up in, on his probably his DOS book he had, whatever DOS it was at the time, yeah. five point one or whatever, and learn how to, you know, unlock this and do this for me just so I can play this one IBM, you know, DOS game. And I'm just thinking like those sort of. Those days are long gone yeah. where you buy a game or any sort of software and you actually actually troubleshoot before you start the program. Like that's sort of that's sort of a bygone error. I don't think consumers nowadays understand that it, you really had to know your PC at least the basics in order to just run software on it. Yeah, it's true. Like I remember distinctly back uh, back in the mid '90s, we published uh, a bunch of people, and one of them was Papyrus, and they had NASCAR Racing, which at the time was a 640 by 480 ra- NASCAR racing game, kind of a simulator or a simulation game. But it came on CD-ROM, and it needed so much conventional memory to run. It was like 588 kilobytes out of 640 that literally. Almost everyone who bought the game had to call us because we would make a boot disk. And what a boot disk was, it was a floppy disk that you would put in. It had system files on the floppy disk. And so you would, you would basically configure your system 
during boot up to play a particular game. And the reason why NASCAR was such a pain in the ass is because the, in order to get it to run, you had to remove the mouse driver. You had to remove um, – <laughs> Uh, in some cases, like if it was a compact Presario, you would have to remove the sound driver because the sound driver was so large that it literally would take up too much conventional memory. And so, but you'd have to keep the CD-ROM driver in, in memory because you needed the CD-ROM to run the game or, you know, it was just like, oh my God, it was a nightmare. And of course, you're dealing with customers who don't know how to even get around and format a floppy disk. It was crazy. Sure, so... So again, this is I'm trying to just color this for people out there who don't realize that. Yeah, when you bought a game, sometimes there would be instructions for creating a boot disk in order to run it, which would basically eliminate everything on the computer that you would not need. You know, basically loaded into memory at the time when you when you booted up your computer. Yeah, just because either right. Yeah, because either your computer didn't have the you know didn't have the the uh, the RAM to run it, or like you said, there could have been some disruptive. Uh, settings of drivers of other whether it's the sound card like you said the mouse where mm-hmm. you just this is the clean the basically the clean boot of the system the clean startup where it's just we're just running the game and that's it and when you're done with it you got to restart your computer to do whatever else you want to do afterwards yeah it was it was a crazy time not only that but just drivers in general oh my god and you had to look up like okay uh what was it the irq settings for yep. like your sound card yep. and this is with sierra games at least sierra's gave you like a nice <laughs> little gooey interface when you were installing stuff but then you had to like experiment with different irqs and your games could just basically crash randomly well yeah like you're playing you're playing space and they'll just crash. Yeah. So, so what, what Pat's referring to there is that you know it, it's an interrupt request is what that is. And so back in the day, your motherboard. And again, I'm I'm not I'm more of a software guy. I'm not a hardware guy. And so, uh, but basically, you know, basic simple computers back then had assignable IRQ settings that would allow hardware to interrupt what is going on in the computer. And so you would have you know, one through 10 or one through 11 or whatever, and you'd have different pieces of hardware assigned to an IRQ. And Sound Blaster cards were typically either five or seven. And, but sometimes those could be used up by other pieces of hardware from the manufacturer. That's why you had other options for them because there wasn't really a standard. And yeah, you could have crashes because some piece of hardware would come along, let's say a printer or, or I don't know, you know, some other device that would interrupt what you're trying to do, which was push sound to the speakers. And so, my God, like, you know, thank God for Windows. <laughs> Windows 98 wasn't much better, but at least, you know, Windows 2000 on, you know, Microsoft solved the IRQ problem. No one cared about it anymore. You didn't have to set it in the, the BIOS when you booted up the machine. Uh, life is much better. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember, well, 95 was buggy as hell because that was the yeah. first big major, you know, Breakthrough. Okay, let's run. Let's try to run DOS oh, on top of, we, we uh, of Windows. It. it was a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember that. I remember that transition period. We're going off topic here, but I, I reference this because I remember seeing one of your videos. A game, for example, like Privateer Two, uh, which I which I loved. And I remember they came out with that quote unquote deluxe edition. And I had the original one, which just ran out of DOS directly. The deluxe edition then said we can run this out of Windows ninety five. It never worked properly. Right compared to the original. So I would just go back, and I know the deluxe one had little th- things they tried to improve, but I remember, remember, I remember buying it and figured this is garbage compared to the original, because it was much cleaner just running it in DOS, not having to yeah. deal with all, you know, crashing into Windows. Like, it could crash in DOS, 
but it would crash more into Windows more likely if you're playing that deluxe version that was quote unquote made for Windows 95. I, yeah. And so we, and they couldn't figure it out totally until I guess Windows 98 were like, okay, now we kind of have this figured out. Yeah. But if we're going to run something in in Windows, it's going to actually run in Windows, not crash back out. Well, the problem with Windows is is that Windows 95 and Windows 98, Windows 98 SE were basically just shells put onto the top of DOS. So mm-hmm. you you have you know 386s, 486s, which really aren't that powerful when you look back, trying to essentially run two operating system, quote unquote, not really, but they basically were running DOS on with a shell. And so that's an awful lot to expect from a PC back in the day. By the way, then we're also going to push, you know, top of the line graphics at you and sound effects and CD-ROM audio. It was just too much. It was too much to, to handle. And again, it wasn't really until Windows 2000 that I think Microsoft finally figured out, okay, DOS is gone. You know what I mean? So let's, let's not try to run both. But it took a while. It's hard for Microsoft because they even run into this today is that you have a bunch of government contractors that write really old software for 10,000 employees spread across, you know, wherever. And it's like you can't just update the, the operating system. You have to keep supporting that old stuff, you know. So. Sure. So let's talk about, we mentioned your time at Sierra. And uh, most people, even people that didn't grow up with computer computers know that Sierra is one of the most famous computer game companies out there, at least in the 80s and 90s. So how did you start with there? What did you originally do? Yeah, so uh, the story, I wish it was more glamorous than it is, but basically, you know, <laughs> I went to school for computer science, and I was, te- I was learning how to program. And uh, sitting around one day with my, with my roommate, I saw an ad in the Seattle Times for uh, an accountant, accounts receivable person at Sierra, and it had their logo, and I was like, what? And the thing to know about this story is that back in 1989 or 90, Excel and other accounting applications really weren't that popular. I don't even know if they were really around. And so most programmers that wanted to make a decent living needed to know how to make accounting software. So, so a couple hours every single day, I was learning accounting. And so here's Sierra with an ad in the paper looking for an accountant. I'm like, well, I can do that. So, <laughs> so I, I, I uh, at the time, you know, I had a color printer, which was kind of unusual. So I printed off their logo on my, on my uh, resume. So my resume actually had their logo printed on it in color. And uh, yeah, dropped it off. They called me back not even a day later. And they're like, <laughs> we want you to come in. <laughs> They figured you could figure that part out. Yeah. You might be know, know what you're doing. Yeah, and so it was really weird. So I, 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 I didn't know. You know, I knew who Sierra was, but I didn't know. I, I just assumed they were they were over here in Bellevue, Washington. Well, no, it turns out actually that they're from Oakhurst, California, but they are moving their corporate headquarters up here, and they'd only moved three people, and that was the accounting people. Well, I had maybe four, four, three accounting people, and one network IT guy. Because they basically were building out the network to start shipping their employees from California. And so I got a job on the ground floor. There was nobody there. It was just a small team of people. And I, I did that for about a year before then I could go into the technical support department. And that's whenever I uh, did the help desk stuff. And then also I wrote articles. I was in a couple video games. And I just – back then you did a little of everything at Sierra. And it was – so it was, that was my way of getting in the door. Sure. Oh, what, what, real, quick, real quick, what games were uh, did you make an appearance in? Well, I probably nothing you'll you'll recognize, um, but it is actually a good one. It's called Shivers Two, and Shivers Two. Not familiar with that one. Yeah, you know it's funny because at the time, 
uh, full motion video games obviously were taking off in the mid '90s, and Mist blew us away. We're like, "Oh crap! Here's an adventure game that we could have made." And so we went into full production mode, making a bunch of full motion video games that you know most people don't even remember. Like we did a Rendezvous with Rama, and uh, we did um, Lighthouse. We did all these weird games. But anyways, I remember Lighthouse. Yeah, yeah. and a lot of and so it came around around that time, the Phantasmagoria era, and it's called mm-hmm. Shivers Two. And uh, they needed a long-haired rocker dude to play guitar because <laughs> the because the game is about a band that gets kidnapped and it it's a uh, it's actually a decent game and I'm in it and we went out to Eastern Washington shot a bunch of music videos and stuff that give the player hints and uh, you see me with long hair rocking out <laughs> nice <laughs> I was going to get into the mix of your music with uh, retro games in a bit but explain the time at Sierra I mean we're talking. A company that literally started by a couple, uh, yep. Ken and Roberta Williams. It grows up into this huge, like, just mega power when it comes to computers and, and especially gaming in the 80s. What was that like? Did it still have sort of that sort of, like, small company feel, but all of a sudden, you know, like, you're, you're playing with the big boys? Yeah, I'm guessing sort of like the Apple feel, where yeah. it's like, all right, we're, we're a big corporation, but we're basically, at the heart, we're, you know, we're sort of uh, down to earth. And we look out for each other. Yeah. So when I started there, uh, absolutely, we were not a publicly traded company yet, and so it was it was you know owned by Ken and Roberta Williams. And you know, it's also important to know that the reason why they moved him from Oakhurst, California, which is a town of like I think ten thousand people, to Seattle, was because they were having a hard time hiring because Sierra was growing so rapidly that they were they were dominant on PC. And even when I when, even when I worked there. We were larger than EA at the time, and uh, we were larger than Activision. We were the largest, and so. But the, the reason why that happened is because they moved the corporate headquarters up to the Puget Sound area, so that way they could get developers. Microsoft was taking off. Nintendo is here. There's a bunch of energy here, and they could get people in the door that would want to work and uh, work on video games. So that's why they did that. And yeah, when I worked there, it was absolutely felt that way in the very beginning for sure. Um, you know, you knew people who were in, in the marketing department. Uh, I would hang out and have lunch with people who were doing the music for some of the educational titles. It was just this energy that, you know, um, I mean, you knew that, that there, it was a great place to work. I loved everything we did, you know. Um, and then, and, and I don't know how much you want to get into this, but, you know, then things did change, that they went public. And that's when I almost immediately within a year saw things change, where, all of a sudden, games were shipping uh, because of the court. You know, you have to do quarterly earnings. And so I remember d- distinctly, we shipped games that were broken, that were unplayable, that literally, like, uh, to give you an idea, like King's Quest Seven, which was a Windows game, big title, beautiful artwork. That game is pretty much broken as we shipped it. So we actually had to put a patch in on it. So the game came out on CD-ROM, but we had to shove a floppy disk in, in the box just so people could finish the game. Uh, another high-profile game called Out... Um, oh, was it Outlast? No, that's what I was playing the other day. Um, Outpost, sorry. So Outpost is like a strategy game. Literally, you can't finish that game. And that's because we are, we went from a family-owned, we'll, we'll ship it when it's ready, to, oh my God, quarterly earnings, we got to make the holiday deadlines, and we definitely started to see quality suffer at that point. That was... The beginning of the end, unfortunately. But for a while, it was awesome to work there. 
so that was was that ninety six when it was when it was uh sold. I, after, was was that as after it was publicly traded? They sold it. Well, yeah. So what happened was that Ken took it public, and then what happened was is that and, and he's talked about this in his blog and stuff is that um, when you are a CEO of a publicly traded company, your job is to make money for stockholders. Okay? Yes. At that point, you are, your fo- your focus is not actually the customer. You are legally required by the you know the FCC to make money for stockholders, and so. At that point, uh, I think it's CUC came to us, which was this mega conglomerate that oh, I think they own Seagram's and all sorts of stuff. Um, they basically offered double the stock price. So at that point, his job is to make money for the stockholders. And if you can double everybody's investment, you are supposed to take that. And that's exactly what he did. Uh, the other thing that also happened to at the time, it's important to remember that, you know, in the late 90s, everybody was talking about the internet. The internet was this big thing. That's when AOL merged with Time Warner. Mm-hmm. Sony got into the to the movie business, and everyone was trying to jump on what's the next big thing, right? And so you had so it wasn't unusual for a lot of companies to go, oh yeah, we need to be in the software thing. We need to have video games, you know, this and that. So they they were building up the portfolio. However, what happened was that people didn't realize that that company was cooking the books to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. And so that's, and it had nothing to do with Sierra at the time. It basically was just like, uh, they were lying, CUC and and all that. And so they basically had to sell off all their assets and fire people. And that that brought, I guess, the end to Sierra as we knew it. Uh, Unfortunately, you you fired a lot of the people that were there since mostly beginning, like Scott Murphy, Outlaw, gone. People that created people that created the franchises that basically built the company, like yeah. Space and, and, Quest, and, and we're Lisa still Larry. making money. So yeah. you know, it, it, I, I I've talked about this on my channel a lot. One of my favorite subsidiaries of Sierra was Dynamics. Dynamics sure. made Willie Beamish. Mm-hmm. They also made you know Rise of the Dragon, but they also made Red Baron and, and Earth Siege and Star Siege and Tribes and blah blah blah. It just goes on and on. They're fantastic developers. They did consistent quality for oh, well over a decade. They let them go. You know, it's like, so you don't do that to people who are rock stars, who are making great games, who are making great money. Most people, even if you don't necessarily, you're not a gamer from the 90s, you go, oh, I remember playing Tribes. Tribes was awesome. Yeah, of course, because that was like a, that was way ahead of its time. You know, just an example of, of the stupidity that happened at that time. It was shocking to see. So the company gets broken up. You're there till the end. No, I wasn't. So I saw the writing on the wall. <laughs> I was like, uh, some of, some of my friends did. Um, my wife was the first person to leave. She was the smartest of all of us. And then I left. I think about a year later. And then uh, my buddy, drunken master Paul, I think he was there to the bitter end because he actually went on to work at One dot net, which was kind of like an online thing. Ken Williams also tried doing like uh, an online internet radio thing, which Paul was a part of, and so. Through him, I got to kind of hear and see the, the the crash and burn in all its glory. So, do you think um, you can't obviously speak for him? But you think looking back, if he knew it was going to happen, that Ken Williams wouldn't have uh, went public with the company, would have tried to keep it you know, sort of together. I'm not saying it would have lasted a huge amount longer, but at least it would have continued in some way, shape, or form for yeah. probably years afterwards. You know, people have asked him that, and you know, he's actually brutally honest. I mean, his answer is basically, you know, I. I want to say he walked away with like $500 million or something like that. It was, oh, sure. You know, and I mean, to, to give you an idea, like when you look up Ken Williams today, like on social media, 
um, all you see is pictures of him and his wife on his massive yacht living on the water and living the dream. So I, 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 although I do think, you know, that said, I, I don't know him. So I, I suspect he probably, uh, would love to, to be in it now. You know, that was, that was a crazy time for Sierra too, because we really struggled with 3d games. Um, you know, we were, we were traditional 2d adventure games and yeah, we had some arcade games here and there, but, uh, you know, dooms and quakes and all that stuff. And, you know, we just struggled. And so I think in some ways he's maybe glad that he got out of it while. Well, that brings up a great point, which I guess what, which way Sierra was going was also the way of PC gaming in general in the nineties, because PC gaming traditionally since its inception was geared towards adults. Since adults were the ones that bought computers, they're the ones that understood it and consoles up until probably even the late 90s were geared towards the teenage and, ch- and child market since it was easier for them to understand you pl- you know you get a cartridge you put it in you plug in controller you play no IRQ settings to deal with no right. boot disk etc so games were always from the Sierra side these were adult titles uh, games like Space Quest, Leadership Larry, Police Quest, the, the big ones, King's Quest, these were for children, while children could uh, enjoy them, and I did enjoy Space Quest as a child, they were, they were written by and for adults, for the most part. And so the adventure game genre, which was always associated with adults, by the mid-90s, yes, it started, started to lose lose out. Like to, like you said, you had uh, games like, for example, Wolfenstein 3D, which, by the way, it's the 25th anniversary coming up already. You, you had this sort of shift as, as the consumer market trended towards, okay, now a computer in every home. That means now children should be playing computer games more, and that's how they began to be marketed more in teenagers. And so maybe, like I said, not, not sure if Sierra would be, still be in the same power it was you know, today, probably not. Uh, it probably would have, you know, in terms of market share, gone down just naturally because of the, the trending in gaming in general on computers. Yeah, you know, Sierra dipped its toes in consoles. So you can go out there and find Coleco cartridges, you know, uh, and they never did very well. Atari computer um, stuff, sure. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, you'll see it as a Sierra Vision or Sierra Online and stuff like that. Uh, so, so they dipped their toes in it, but yeah, absolutely. It was never. Also, too, on the PC, we tried for a while. Uh, we did a series of games, KAA, which Ken Williams said is, stands for Kick Ass Action. And we had a couple <laughs> PC <laughs> games that were designed to be arcade kid friendly, like uh, Hunter Hunted was one of those games. Um, we did a fighting game and some other stuff. You know, we, we did have, we had some stuff like uh, The Incredible Machine and things like that. But but uh, to your point, like, for instance, we tried to do 3D in a big way because we saw the future coming. Like, for instance, the last Gabriel Knight, Gabriel Knight 3 is a full 3D game. Uh, the last King's Quest game, well, before the reboot, uh, King's Quest 8 is a full 3D game. And they're just not good. And they're just not. And it's because it just... We didn't know what to do there. And so, you know, would it continue on? The one thing I would say is that Sierra was very smart about publishing as well. So we made our own games, but we also published people like, for instance, Papyrus. We published the first Half-Life. Valve came to us. We helped name it, actually. Um, And then also, like, uh, Blizzard came to us for one of the Diablos. And so, like, we were able to buy Diablo in the Sierra store for a while. And so... I would say that based on that, Sierra probably would have continued on as a publisher, 
you know, it depends on what kind of talent you get in to actually do the program themselves. But, and you still see that. Like, every once in a while, someone will come up to me with, like, a Sierra game on the PlayStation 2. Do you remember working on this? No, that was, <laughs> that was not the Sierra that you, you know and love. That's, that's a name. It's actually owned probably by, well, for a while it was a French company. And then, uh, crap, what was it? And then, uh, and I think Activision owns the name now. Oh, it's yeah. only a name. Nobody works there. Nobody that. Oh, sure. And then the, the the various properties are split between different companies and bought out between different companies yeah. at this point. Uh, but yep. yeah, I would love to buy the Space Quest uh, trademark just to try to bring it back. Oh, I myself. know. I mean, you know, you know, there's there's a market. There's still a market yes. there. I'm not saying it's the size it was 25 years ago. There's a market there. Uh, what, what did they, didn't they do a Kickstarter? Uh, Scott Murphy, Mark Crow, they did a Kickstarter for a Space Quest type of game. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if that ever came out, but you had the Leisure Suit uh, Larry uh, remake that came out, which I hear mixed things about, but it was successful enough on Kickstarter. So, there, yeah. again, there is a market out there for some of these properties still. The King, yeah, they, try, it, they try to do the King's Quest game. I'm not sure, though, if the name carried weight, though, with the younger generation of game players, but, you know, there's still a market. Yeah, there, there was also a Kickstarter for the Police Quest series, but, again, it, it, they don't have a license to the name, and so... You know, it, it's kind of in the, one of those limbos where it sort of has to be word of mouth. And it, it's hard, I think. It, I don't think any of those were necessarily super successful. And it's, it's I, I get the feeling it's because t- too much time has languished. You know what I mean? Like, some people remember it. But I just think it's tough to, to kick. I don't know. It just, it's sad. Oh, wow. That's kind of a downer. I love Sierra, I right? <laughs> You're just like, yep, it's just sad. All right. Well, you, well you, you know, you, you know what I've been doing though. Like, uh, I've been trying to buy up all the games, and so that's been one of my goals. Oh, segue, uh, segue into yeah. PC game collecting. Well, in 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 for that reason, because I didn't keep them at the time, they were fairly worthless. You could, you know, you couldn't give them away. And nowadays, oh, sure. my God, it's like trying to find some of those obscure Sierra titles in big box complete is tough and expensive i threw away i kept all the cd roms and discs for the most part i think for example was it dynamics that did goblins i had go- um no uh, it was the french company i for uh but yes i remember goblins but it was sierra published though correct yes yeah we did so i had goblins too um and i remember I, I i threw out all the boxes to all these games i had yeah like up until i mean i bought a lot of pc games up till the late 90s and early 2000s, so yeah, like Dark Forces, I had the original box. All those uh, original Sierra games, um, I had the boxes for. You know, Police Quest Three, Space Quest, I had. I used to actually buy them all as an aside. For some reason, you know where they ended up in the bargain bin at? KB Toy Stores hmm. would have would have PC titles. We're talking late eighties, early nineties, and that's where I got like, for example, like Space Quest Three was in the bargain bin there. I'm sure it was a few years old at that point. And I got the uh, the you know the the EGA version of it. I'm not sure if it was they had a VGA one or not, but I got I got the EGA version of it. And they had a lot of stuff in there, and that's where I was like, oh, it was marked down for like you know fifteen dollars or so, you know something yeah. like that. And you can pick up some some good titles that were a few years old. And that's how I sort of expanded my sort of PC gaming. You know, you, you don't get a lot of money on two dollars a week allowance or a few dollars a week allowance, <laughs> so you have to spend it wisely. And this is right before computer shows too, which I can get into. I always love talking about the computer shows and how that was sort of out of time, and that's that's something I'll probably never return as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, collecting PC games is sort of this uh, movement that's happened more the last two or three years that I've seen, and I don't think it'll ever catch on 
like retro gaming in general has catch, caught on uh, for lots of reasons. But it's good that people are trying to seek these games out. I know you're one of the people. I've been doing it for a while. And it's it's a very strange, strange world. Yeah, it is. It's, it, it, it's, it's strange because some games will cost you 50 cents and some will cost you 300 you know yes. I mean? And I mean, it's it's really like I think in the, you know, the Nintendo Genesis area, it, I think the prices are maybe a little bit more even. But man, in PC gaming, oh, my God, it's like, you know, there's a handful of three, four hundred dollar games out there on the PC and then everything else is, you know, cheaper, not maybe not 50 cents, but uh, it's all over the place. But also, too, to be fair, there are tens of thousands of games, you know. Oh, uh, sure. Depends on what you count into that. If you want to count Commodore, Atari ST, Amiga, you know. And by and large, the difference with PC gaming is that it's run mostly on uh, demand in terms of popularity versus rarity. A game, a game like Wolfenstein 3D, which they sold a ton of, yeah. Um, even going back and trying to buy the shareware versions of those titles will cost you. Uh, and there's probably millions that exist still right. um, yeah, in some shape point. or form. But if you want to, like, for example, someone came up to me at a, at a convention and he gave me this game that, you know, a regional title, sort one of those sort of like, uh, what's the best way to compare it to? We had Key Punch software. I'm not sure if I spoke about this. You were like, you know, the regional small boxes that are like four by six inches where it was like a collection of games, like four on one, five and a quarter floppy. You know, they've, they would sell them in bookstores in, like, New Jersey, maybe okay. New York. But it was totally not nationwide. You know, it was hmm. probably a few different regions. So this guy gives me a regional uh, game like this where it's, like, in this little blister pack. And I'm saying to myself, I will never see this game again. Like, <laughs> right. this is complete. It's in a package. They probably sold a few hundred of these back when it came out. You know, this game is extremely rare. This is a preservation of history. It's also absolutely worthless because no one wants it. Right. Um, and that's the key difference. If it's any console at all, any retro game console, where there's one game that's hard to find, automatically it's worth money. Well, automatically. I, but, well, not, it, but not at computers. Well, and I think the reason for that, one good reason is, is that, you know, it's impossible to get, a, to get a complete PC collection. It's impossible. Sure. Because what do you mean? Are you talking about the eighties, the nineties, the two thousands? You know, two tens. Are you? T- you know, it, are you talking? T- are you talking uh, IBM slash Tandy? Are you talking Apple II? Yeah. You talking Commodore? Are you talking Atari yeah. computer? Yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, so it's complicated. No one can do it. I mean, even Commodore had ten thousand titles that were officially programmed for it. So uh, nobody tries to do that. So what, instead, what you do is you try to build up a collection of the games that you love the most. Although, as a side note, Commodore is incredibly tough to 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 collect for because most people pirated them. So, yes, you would have a game that was really popular, but nobody bought it. So there may only be five copies of that game out there. A great example of that is uh, an awesome game called Space Taxi. Really, really want that game. Doesn't come up on eBay very often. Complete, almost never. And it's like, but yet everybody played that game. Same thing with the great Guiana Sisters, a Mario clone on Commodore 64. Mm-hmm. Love to own a copy of that. I had a copy of it as a kid on a, you know, bootleg floppy disk but, <laughs> but now of course i want a real copy and it's like impossible it's pretty funny it's also impossible and, and there are even oh, what is it i think it's like the dos project they're trying to even just catalog just just catalog every dos program and just to get it just to get a version of it archived online and that and not just games whether it's spreadsheets or any other software and that's going to be close to impossible 
because a lot of these releases were mom and pops. Like I said, a lot of them were either regional companies or smaller. You know, for example, someone like uh, Richard Garriott with Aqualabeth. You know, high schooler gets his game into, you know, one local game store. Right. And that's it. Technically, that game was released. Technically, you know, yeah. that's released. And there's not many copies that exist in that original form. Of course, and, then it gets re-released, and then he goes on to bigger, bigger, bigger and better things. But think about, that's the success story versus the yeah. thousands of ones that no one cared about or sold only a couple of copies of. Yeah, no, it's true. And actually, you, you mentioned uh, Aklabath. Is that how you pronounce that? That is one of, that's one of the rarest PC games out there. I mean, for those that don't know, it basically came out, came out <laughs> in a baggie. Yeah, it literally it did not have a box, but it came out and I mean it had a label and it had a manual, and it's considered Ultima Zero essentially. And so if you are going for an, a complete Ultima collection, you have to own that. And yeah, you can spend one to three thousand dollars because there's less the, than what fifty of them. You know, I, like it's what like how many were actually sold. You know, I, Richard I Garrett no probably has a few left laying around outside of yeah. spaceship. But I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. it's yeah. just one of those strange things. I I was trying to uh, track down. I'm still trying to track down uh, uh, soft porn. You know, the early yeah. text adventure, the, sort of the predecessor to Lucy Larry by We're, by online at the time online systems wasn't even Sierra yet. And, and, and it has has naked uh, Roberta Williams on the cover. Well, she's in the jacuzzi, but <laughs> yeah, it's damn. I remember we'd look at that because we were you know employees would be like, "Holy crap, that's our boss!" <laughs> yeah, but good good luck me finding a, a version of that in the box. You know, what I mean, how many right. of those do you think still exist? A hundred? You know, that are out there. I know. I, I sometimes you, you talk to these collectors like, "Oh yeah, I owned a couple of those back in the day," and it's like it's insane that. I think you have those very few people that held on to all these things. Otherwise, yeah, well, you're never going to find them. No, and, and honestly, I mean, I, I used to have a massive big box collection, and then you'd move a couple times, right? And you're sure. like, screw this, you know what I mean? And then, of course, now I have the space, and so I am I hope to never get rid of those things. But, man, it's it's painful, you know? Uh, do you, you concern yourself with the different versions? For example, I have Ultima 1 through 4 all complete in box, but like I think Ultima 2 is like Atari computer. One of them is Commodore. The other two are either Apple or IBM. Do you care about that as much, or just you're just lucky to get one, you know, one version of it, you know, in the in, in the package? Yeah, I, I don't. I'm just like you. I don't worry about it. My collect my big box PC collection is really all over the place too, and the reason for that is very simple: is that uh, usually it, it doesn't matter. I mean, the only difference is really that little label that's on the corner and you know what the label is on the floppy disks. And so, um, and what I really care about is the box, the map, the manual, you know, and all that stuff is usually exactly the same. So, uh, that's how I am. I, although there are, there are some games because I was such a big Commodore 64 freak, I would love to get on the Commodore, but again, it's like impossible. So I'll take the Atari XT version or, you know, Amiga. Oh, sure. I'm just, I just want to get, try to get the, it's basically, it's like records. You get the first edition of the game, for example, right. <laughs> you know, cause Sierra re-released King's Quest, like what, three times? Oh, shit, at least. So like, I, I, I don't think I have the first version. I probably have like the 87, you know, like EGA mm. remake or VGA remake, you know, so I don't have the original, original version, you know, like right. you don't want the version with the three and a half lobby. You just want the five and a quarter one, you know, from <laughs> what was King's Quest? 84 originally, something like that. So, yeah. but that's basically that's where I'm at at my quote unquote career um, in terms of PC collecting. But why do you think it's? I don't want to say it's not blown up, but but gotten to a, even a respectable uh, amount because even like three four years ago, uh, I'd go to uh, retro gaming conventions like in Portland, and you'd have maybe a couple guys with 
big box PC titles, and no one was looking at them besides maybe me and one other person. Like no one cared about them. So what do you what do you think's happened the last few years besides people like you ruining the market for everyone <laughs> by saying, "Oh, I'm collecting them. You should too." <laughs> it's funny you mention that because I remember at one of the early Portland Retro Gaming Expos. I remember the first time I met you there, 2010. You and I were you were looking. I think you held like a Police Quest game or something like that in your hand. I was like, "Ooh," because I wanted it, but I think you bought it. <laughs> Did I? I don't remember. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. No, 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 no worries. The, about, the, man. the original, the original Police Quest. <laughs> yeah, something like that. I remember. But it, you know, it's hard to say. I think that. Well, I think what it is is it's the it's the people who obviously grew up with PC games, who are, who are starting to appreciate. You know what came with those things and what those are. I was, I was hanging feelings. out with Reggie the other. I was, yeah, I was hanging out with Reggie just the other day, and I was surprised to learn that even Reggie, who is I think ten years younger than me, looks back fondly at the PC. And uh, he looks back. You know, he was obviously very young, but um, he was. You know, he's telling me that he loved Phantasmagoria. And I was just like, oh, you know, he never talks about that. You know. But it was cool to see. It was cool to hear. And I was like, oh, okay. So I guess my, my point is I think that the PC appreciation market is actually bigger than people realize. It's just that it's so scary for people to go back and try to get those to run that I think for the vast majority, most people don't. But me, myself, I am definitely looking. I am on eBay looking to to get a couple choice titles for my collection, you know? And I definitely look at expos but we're not but even though like i go to portland there are tables but i don't get the sense that a lot of people are looking for games i think there's it used to be two people now there's five you know what i mean but we do buy up almost everything that we see that we don't have because i think at this point it really is a preservation yes first first and foremost the difference between retro game collecting is that a large chunk will will want to play the games that they buy. Maybe not everyone. You have, of course, all the, the term like shelf collector. But the preservation of the games when it comes to computers, Apple, etc., is like you said, the things that came with them, the maps, the feelies, you know, the workarounds to, to, to copyright, those things are going to be lost. All, all the games are online, and they've been re-released. You can play them all. You can download them in one way or fashion. Like I said, there's even like like DOS Project where even these esoteric games, quote-unquote abandonware, you can find the actual game software, and that's preserved, but everything that came with it is not. So like, yes, like my example, soft porn. Yeah, you they, they re-released that with Leader Suit Larry, you know, one of the collections. You can de- play it online probably right now. But good luck finding like the original instruction manual. Right. You know, good luck finding the box. You yeah. know, that's that's yeah. to me what's the important part. I think people are trying to fill in the you know fill in the blanks right now. Yeah, no, I, it, it's true. Like people bitch and moan because they can't find a copy of some NES game, and I laugh because I'm like, ha, 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 try finding a copy of Battle Bugs, okay? You know, <laughs> or you know some some weird you know uh, like uh, Gabriel Knight One with the twisty box is impossible to find uh it'll cost you three to four hundred dollars and you're going to compete for it you know what i mean because there literally might only be 10 copies in i don't know there was a twisty box i didn't even know that (laughs) yeah yeah there's a there's a version of it that's a puzzle and it's a twisty box if you look it up if you look gabriel knight one and and and, uh the first release of that is this really weird shaped box that it's not even square at all what is it uh what's that other one uh star cross um, they had that plastic UFO uh, packaging where they actually was shaped like a UFO. 
and it's very hard to find. It was brittle. They couldn't put it on shelves because they couldn't balance it because it's a freaking <laughs> shaped like a saucer. That's one of the more coveted, I guess, weird, you know, um, uh, PC games from back in the day. That's that's a variant. And so, yeah, I guess you're, you're right. Like, you, we have to find these things that are not thrown out. I know. I know. It's crazy. And, and also, too, it used to be much easier to go to half-price books and some of these other places that would stock them. But key codes killed that. And so they're scared, basically, because now while most of the games I collect don't have key codes, but anything from the 2000s on... Those stores can't sell them because the key codes might be used. For so people, people, be- don't, people don't know, once you reached a certain point to combat piracy, when you bought a game in a PC store, you were basically just buying the code inside so you can actually register to run it. Yes. So when you go to the swap meets or flea markets nowadays, don't buy any PC game from, I'd say, 99-2000 on uh, because it probably won't run. Buy it if you want to collect it, but not to actually play it because it probably you won't be able to get it to work without cracking it because that serial number has been used already. Right. And so that that killed the, the resale market for most retro game stores, pawn shops, and, and thrift stores because – you know they don't they don't know or care enough to really distinguish between the two, and so they would be basically just have customers come back. I can't get this to work. It doesn't work. You sold me something that doesn't work. And so at that point, a couple of years ago, they're just like, fine, we're just not going to stock PC games anymore. And so I, I we see that. I mean, Kelsey who runs Pink Gorilla, that's exactly what she told me. She just she she doesn't know enough about it, doesn't care enough about it. To, you know, to to it's not her thing, and so they just don't do it. So that makes it very difficult. The only place she can really get PC games is at you know, garage sales, if you're very lucky, expos and eBay. That's it. Which, again, is, which is why the difference between retro games is that every year going to these retro game conventions, you see younger kids that want to play these older consoles. You can't do that with old PC games. It's it's a, right. it's very complicated. It's a lot harder to spread the knowledge and spread the gameplay experience to a new generation to go back and say, oh, yeah, play the first King's Quest game. How are we going to do that? Well, get your old XT out, dust it off. <laughs> Boot yeah. it up, you know, and make sure the software runs, show the kid how to type in commands. It's a learning process, and it's not, it's right. a lot harder than getting out your NES, blowing in the cartridge, and playing Super Mario Brothers. You know, yeah. it's, it's so, so we might be that sort of last generation that really appreciates these games. Yeah. You know, like it, might die, it might actually die out with us to some degree. Like, these are going to be relics 100 years from now. Remember, you know, remember those old PC games? It's going to be like, I don't know, before you had like, you know, records, you had those tubes they played in the players. You know what I mean? Like the original Edison <laughs> oh, yeah. player. That's oh, what yeah. these PC games might become. Yeah, it's true. Although, although thankfully, I guess to end up on a higher note, uh, that's one of the reasons <laughs> why I do love GOG.com. And I absolutely, to your point, like, you know, when I buy these PC games at, at you know, like a garage sale, whatever, I don't care if it works. Because I know that I can go on GOG.com and pretty much download so much of this. It's optimized for Mac and Windows 10, uh, even Linux, you know. And so if I want to play the game, the good news is it's it's archived. Uh, but, you know, so that there is some solace in that. Sure. I think I think in, ter- in terms of the PC collecting market, like you said, you're right. It, it's almost immaterial if some of these games will run or not. If you, if I find that Starcross weird UFO packaging, I'm not going to care if the disc works or not. It's yeah. the, I'm buying it for the packaging. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's that's why I'm buying it. It can I can always, you know, uh, recopy the floppy, you know, if I want to or <laughs> right. do like when you find PC games nowadays when I find an Ultima, someone's already pre-copied, you know, back from 20 years ago. They already yep. copied it just in case, which is what we did oh, yeah. back then back in the day too. But uh 
Good old PC collecting. Well, you like spreading the, the love of that as well as retro games in general. So, you know, let's talk about your channel a bit be- because it's definitely gained in popularity year after year. You know, ever, ever since, I, you know, when I first met you in 2010 at the very small and sweaty Portland Retro Gaming Expo when it was underneath the parking garage. Uh, <laughs> I think uh, <laughs> I actually met you before that, Pat. Do you remember? Before 2010? Well, Cheesecake Factory. Do you remember that? In 2010? I don't remember, but it was PAX, and, and there was a meetup at the Cheesecake Factory oh, that across was, the street. That was 2011. That was a year later. Oh, okay. But I don't you think remember? it was a Cheesecake Factory. It was like a restaurant. Was it a Cheesecake Factory? Wow. That that was the weekend uh, I premiered the uh, NWC Championship yes. video with James. Yeah, that yes. was definitely the next year. We, we first met okay. in 2010, yeah. But I do okay. remember that. You were there. Gamester was there. I do remember that. Yes. Yeah. So I'm sorry. Please continue. Oh. <laughs> As an aside, we're trying to mix up our dates. We're both old. That's the point. Oh God, we're, we're both I'm old. terrible about that stuff. Um, so your YouTube channel—it's it, a success, and you've sort of um, done well, I think, in branching out. Uh, you have several different types of videos. Whether, like I said before, it's like pickup videos, you know, r- room uh, game collection tours, uh, hidden gems. Buying guides, which I think are useful, and people like you know how to get into collecting certain uh, games. But you also spotlight others that you know, other friends on your channel. So let me, because but that's not common for a YouTube channel to do. I, I love to pick your brain on you know your decision to do that and to sort of branch out. And not just featuring yourself, but others. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I early on, I realized that I could not. I did not want to be, I, I didn't want to pretend like I knew everything. And so, you know, there's 40 plus years of video game knowledge and I wanted to be able to cover all of it. And while I have my niche, obviously I know PC games and I have stuff over here that I, that I know. I play the PlayStation 4 almost every day, the Switch, all that stuff. But but I realized early on that why why should I have to try to do all this myself? And so I reached out to uh, John Hancock. I happen to live next to one of the biggest, most impressive game collectors in the country. And that is the immortal John Hancock. He has 11,000 games. He has 25 complete U.S. collections. And so I was like, well, shit, you know, let's bring John on and let's see if uh, we can do some videos together. And it just kind of expanded from there. Kinsey, Kelsey, Reggie, Drunken Master Paul. Um, you know, I'm a people person. I like hanging out with people. I like that energy. It is so much easier to have somebody standing next to you to riff off of. Oh, sure. Than to, than to try to fill up the space. You know this on your podcast, right? You know, when, when, when Ian's talking, you are formulating the next thing that's going to happen and vice versa. And so it, it seems to flow better. I love it. I mean, I just think it's, it's so much more dynamic. You get a bunch more personalities and knowledge in there. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, I'm happy that they, uh, they want to do it too. And they've, all been very grateful as they kick off their own YouTube channels. So they're using basically you're piling them for their own YouTube careers. <laughs> you're like spitting them off, like you know Laverne and Shirley off of Happy Days, right? <laughs> is that basically Joni loves Chachi? The reference? And, Joni yeah. loves Chachi. Oh, Joni <laughs> just died. Rest in peace. The actress just died. Yeah, that's right. true. <laughs> but um, so you, you're you're of the rare variety then of YouTuber for two reasons. Uh, you admit you don't know everything about the topic you want to discuss. Um, and also, you don't mind sharing that spotlight. You realize that, hey, what I'm doing, it's good to sort of spread the spread the love out to other people, get them involved, create more of a community feeling at the same time, while also educating and having fun. And I think that's an, an important part, because I think 
um, oftentimes with YouTube, you're stuck in the you know one producer, one man show, and I think that's limiting not only in terms of creativity, but also over time you can burn yourself out uh, doing that. Which is what I've struggled with. It was one of the reasons why I wanted to do a podcast and do one and having Ian on the channel because it gives me a chance to bring someone else in another perspective that I may not always agree with, but also keeps things fresh at the same time. So you've you've managed to find that balance. I take it. Yeah, I have, and I've and also too over the years, each one of those people have 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 really contributed to the channel uh, in big ways. And also to be fair, while. I always look at it as sort of my name on the door. It's my YouTube channel, and I'm ultimately responsible for the content of it. But when we go into videos, I definitely want it to be a collaborative effort. I'm, I'm interested in what they have to say. I want to know what their ideas are. Um, you know, And, and I, I really want it to be a team effort. And we, really, we did, definitely do that, and that's what I think makes it really fun. Um, and then, in general, what happens is that, you know, like, for instance, Reggie comes over, and we shoot three to four videos in one day. Um, and then, and you know, maybe two days later, Kelsey will come over and we'll shoot a couple videos, three to four videos, maybe something like that. And so I always have a big backlog of videos to work on, capture the gameplay footage, edit, create thumbnails, all that sort of stuff. But it allows me to then, you know, if I have 20 videos sort of in a can, then I can, then I look at a step back from the calendar and I'm like, okay, we got Reggie on Friday, Kelsey on Tuesday, John the next Friday, and I just kind of build out my my schedule, which allows me to take days off if I'm sick, if I want to go on vacation, you know, because I create a hundred and something videos a year. So, uh, you do at least what three a week? Just two, <laughs> just two. Okay, <laughs> yes, <laughs> and two, and you know, for for what I do, that's more than enough. So, because my Friday videos especially are usually videos that take anywhere from. 20 to 60 hours to make, you know, just for the Friday videos. Oh, and sure. Two- We're talking about uh, if, it's, if there's any writing involved, shooting, editing, gameplay capture, editing yes. the gameplay. Yes. Long-form videos, uh, I want to impart to the audience. Uh, let's just p- say produced videos, not podcast videos, not Let's Plays. We can argue about how produced Let's Plays are. But the videos that you're talking, 20-minute videos, can take tons of time to do for one yeah. video. It's rough. Oh, it- it's rough. true. Well, so today I and to give you an idea. Today I released a let's play video I shot last week with Reggie. We're playing Outlast, new game. Um, you know, that's that's basically. I mean, if you look at all the time just for that let's play, you know, it's an hour of shooting, and then it's two hours of editing, which is pretty quick, right? You know, but you know, lining things up, fixing audio, color correction, that sort of stuff. A little bit of animation here and there. Then it's uploading, which takes for. A four gig file takes about half an hour to an hour, maybe two hours, something like that. Thumbnail creation. Then it just goes live this morning. Then I'm on social media. Then I'm at you know six thirty a.m. I'm up and I'm posting on Patreon, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You know, answering people's questions. Blah blah blah. So people don't realize that the the amount of work, just even for a let's play that I just did, you know, we're saying five six hours of total work that. Thankfully, I am, it's my job to do that, and I absolutely love to do it. But you know, that's a that's that's a quote unquote simple video. But that's yes, your simple video. Let's talk about yes. then your buying guides, or yeah, you know, we're talking then. You know, you're you're quintupling the amount of time on those videos. Yeah, so let's talk about like what goes into like say a buying guide I'm working on. So I'm going to do a buying guide on the Commodore 64. 
So for that, I have a rule. I like to show what I'm talking about if possible, because I think that's what's kind of unique about my channel is that we are collectors. And if I can show the game, if I can show the system. So the Commodore basically had four different models of system. Well, we only had two when I started. The portable version is very expensive. So what I what I end up doing is I, I go into the sort of mode where I'm starting to collect things and acquire the the assets that I need on eBay, looking to see, okay, what are my top 10 games that I would recommend to people? Can I capture the footage? Can I buy those games? Are they even available? Uh, the answer is obviously sometimes no <laughs> with Commodore. Um, then there's a bunch of research. I, I try to learn as much as possible. I grew up with the Commodore, so it's kind of easy for me, but I may not know the, the, the ins and outs of, say, the Commodore 128, which had a Commodore 64 in it, you know, or the Commodore C, which is the the modern version of that. Or, you know, and, and also, too, like, for instance, with this one, I want to talk about the SD drives that you can get for the Commodore. So I had to buy a couple SD drives uh, so we're talking a monetary investment when you're doing these videos as well. And yes, yes. While, while this could be tax deductible, it's still money out of your pocket. You oh, know? absolutely. And I've been doing that for a long time is that, um, you know, it, like if we're going to do, you know, a hidden gems video for the PlayStation 4, you know, we're showing those games. We bought them. Now, often they're from my collection. But, you know, often I have like a long-term vision. I have a list of 30 videos I'm working on and so or more. And so I know, okay, well, next time GameStop has a buy two, get one free sale, I'll pick up these titles that I'm looking for. And this is often two, three months in advance, you know. And so I, I, I'm usually projected a way out. So the Commodore 64, to give you an idea, I bought the portable version of it last year. Um, Kinsey, who was working on this video, bought the Commodore 64C last year. And so these are videos that we work sometimes a year in advance on to make sure that we can do right. So you're, so you're managing, like you said, 20 to 30 video ideas. I'm guessing you look at all yeah. different types of consoles. You can do them buying guys in top 10 hidden gems for all the variety of you mm -hmm. know, dozens of retro game systems. So then you have to start realizing, okay, if I'm 10 months out from even wanting this video to come out, I have to start acquiring all these games and all the hardware before I, I can even think about shooting this with a person or by myself. So we're talking backtracking way in advance, which, which is yeah. admirable because usually with, with um, the process for traditional retro game reviews, whether it's something I do or something like James Rolfe does, all we have to worry about is do we have that one game? Right. Or, you know, do we have the console for that one game? We usually have the console ready. And then if at most we have to buy that one or two or three games for it. You're talking about buying all the hardware on top of buying all the games you show. And if you're doing a buying guide, you can be talking, what, a couple dozen different games that you have well, to make sure you have? Not necessarily, because I think people who hear that might be going, wow, that sounds like a lot of money. How much does this guy make? You know? <laughs> but the, the, You're the a millionaire. Truth, yeah, no, the, the truth is actually I don't drop a ton of money because obviously that would not make me very much money if you know <laughs> in the youtube ad revenue world but 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 to that point though that's the reason why people like john hancock are so handy the guy has eleven thousand games and his his collection complements mine really well and actually most of the people on my channel complement my collection really well so for instance i did a video very recently with reggie where we talked about some of the most rare and expensive playstation one games I didn't have to contribute a, a, a game to that at all. Reggie already owned them. He's been collecting them for years. And so uh, and we're also going to be doing a, a video on the DS and some of the more collectible games. Kelsey already has those. Um, you know, she has the really 
expensive games. So, so I'm very practical about it. I don't, you know, you'll not, let's put it this way. If I was going to do a top 10 rare, expensive NES games, I'm not going to buy any of them. Uh, John Hancock already owns them all. So that, that's a very easy one for, for he and I to do. Uh, recently I did one with him, what the N64, he has the complete collection, you know, in box. So, so to answer your question, um, I don't typically want to go out and buy just 10 games, you know, or drop hundreds of dollars, you know, for a video, but but you just you just uh, you you just benefit from the community of other collectors around you. You're you're lucky to have a nice uh, network of friends that you could you can help each other out. Yeah, and it's and you know and, and that's the part you're getting into before is that I'm surprised other YouTubers don't do this. John Hancock is not super unusual in, in that regard. I mean, there's oh, there are, oh, oh no, he's unusual in that regard. Well, well, <laughs> the size of his collection. <laughs> I mean, I mean, not not to discount John Hancock in any way because his collection <laughs> is pretty amazing. However, there are other mega collectors. Um, out there in the U.S. and the world that have like there's there's the last gamer in Australia, like I mean he 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 won he's got the certificate you know so if I was a YouTuber in in Melbourne Australia wherever he's from I would be bugging him to do videos because he's got an amazing collection. Well, I think it's also a combination of things, right? So for example, I'm in San Diego. Yes, there are other collectors out here in San Diego, but are they on YouTube? Do they want to do YouTube videos? Do they have the ability to do YouTube videos? You know, do they have a nice online presence? You're in a very unique situation that I don't see that often, where you're like, oh, yeah, down the street, you're one of the bigger collectors. By the way, John Hancock's one of the nicest guys on the planet on yeah, top of that. totally. And there's a lot of things that goes into this. I've seen, I've seen collectors uh, more often than not you know, snipe, backstab each other. It sounds like you have a nice nice group of people that are actually very nice, genuine, and really just love retro games without any sort of uh, pretentiousness or any sort of any ulterior motives. And that's, to me, uh, less common than you unfortunately see out there. And then when you throw YouTube into the mix, and then potential drama and maybe egos getting in the way, it's a, it can be a really bad stew. That I've seen happen on other channels, not yours, where it's like, yeah, there's a group of people making videos, and sometimes it falls apart. So, no, I'm actually glad that you have a nice balance with everyone. Well, here's what I would say to that, Pat. Um, it's nice of you to say that. However, it's not true. So <laughs> okay. there there are people who are no longer on my channel because because of that reason. And so uh, every once in a while, somebody will be like, hey, how come you don't have this particular person on anymore? And it's for the reasons that you said, that we either – didn't gel or there was tension or it just didn't feel right. And so, um, and, and that, that's, again, that's back on me as a producer, nothing, you know, sometimes the chemistry is just not there or they're not right for my channel. And that's why I do have a lot of people on my channel because, um, you know, some people work out, some people don't, you never know, but the core people, the Kinsey's, the Kelsey's, Reggie's, you know, John Hancock's man, they are rock solid. We are friends first. There's no tension there. And also, too, I'm very happy to promote them, too, and in everything that they do. I want them to succeed just as much. And so um, it's as much as they contribute to me getting subscribers and the views and all that, uh, I want to give back to them as well. It, it is a community. I see these people many times throughout the year. So we're friends first for sure. Man, I guess you're lucky. I mean, I mean, like you said, not everyone works out, but in general, you found a nice solid group and I'm sitting here in San Diego. This isn't a woe is me. There's like no one out here. Ian, Ian has, you know, his job at the, at the, at the store, 
and he's hurt a lot. And the other collectors in San Diego, most of them don't like me. <laughs> so it's like, uh, it's a rough spot. But oh, whatever. That's why I like talking to you guys. I'll live vicariously through someone like you who has a nice community. Um, so what, what, what do you have going on? Anything in the future besides the 20 to 30 uh, different, <laughs> different reviews and buying guides you have lined up? Yeah, well, that keeps me busy, you know. Um, <laughs> oh, here it is. New videos, Tuesday and Friday. There it is on your page. Oh, I see yeah. it. All right. <laughs> um, well, uh, to give you an idea, like, for instance, you know, we're talking about community and stuff like that. So typically I have thrown a party at my house and invited people over to come, you know, come hang out and, you know. I've never uh, been invited before, Jason. Well, have you been on my <laughs> channel officially? <laughs> I don't make it up to Seattle enough. I got to go up there. Yeah. So for this year, I decided I was going to do something different. So I basically rented out a vacation home uh, in Oregon uh, on the beach. And I rented out for five days, uh, which is not cheap. And, you know, to house 10 people, 10 plus people. And I've invited them to come down uh, to do that this summer. So, um, you know, as a huge thank you, we're going to go down there, sleep in, play video games, shoot videos, uh, you know, be stupid. And I, I think I'm really looking forward to it. So that's going to be uh, this year's thank you for those guys. It sounds like a plot to a horror movie with some retro <laughs> gaming stuff thrown in. <laughs> like two well, of you see, end up dragging out yourselves out alive. The rest of was gone. <laughs> see, see I, I can't tell you the address, so you'll show up with a hockey mask and like a machete or something just to scare people. I'll, I'll try to find that copy of the box soft porn I've been looking for. Someone there owns it. <laughs> Who has it? Speaking of finding rare stuff, I mean, you live in the mecca of that because of the proximity to, obviously, Nintendo of America's uh, U.S. headquarters. And you've uh, come across some really nice stuff, let's just say, partially because of that. Yeah, well, you know, I know. So you're referring to the 64DD drive, and absolutely true. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but more than that, though, obviously, you know, people forget Microsoft is here. And my buddy Emilio found that one-of-a-kind, literally one-of-a-kind official Halo Orange Xbox at a garage sale for $20. And essentially what that was was the guy who was in charge of marketing and making some of these test Xboxes had a buddy who was a Halo fan and used their official printer to put Halo on that orange Xbox. And Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's official. It works. It's got the Halo logo on there. It's all legit. And uh, again, Emilio bought that for 20 bucks, turned around and sold it to a local um, preservationist for much, much more. Much more monies than, than what he found it for. Yeah. I'm thinking at some point, these people that run these garage sales, and this goes back to uh, 10, 15 years ago, what that one person found was he found the Campus Challenge and the Star Fox competition carts all at, you know, all at one garage sale. Eventually, these people are going to just start turning shotguns and pitchforks on you when they come to the garage sales, I think. It's one of those really weird things. And this, and this orange Xbox, it was confirmed that this was the only one that was ever produced. Yeah, so on Assembler Games, it got originally posted on there because people are like, what is this, right? What the heck's going on? Well, it... Uh, I think it's in the Wikipedia article, but uh, you can sh you can follow the link and the guy who made it, uh, who was in charge of it. It's actually pretty interesting because he also shows photos of a glow in the dark original Xbox that they were working on. Oh wow! Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's like white but kind of see through and it glows in the dark. He, and he shows racks of these things that they uh, that they were beta te or you know testing out. Um, some of the really weird green ones, the solid you know like the uh, oh when they were doing the, the Mountain Dew ones and stuff. So, yeah, it's, it, it's confirmed. That, that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, looking at Wikipedia, 
Looks like they may have made more, but they were destroyed potentially. This is the only one that survived. Wow, that's nuts. Absolutely insane. It's interesting. That's pretty much my cutoff for retro gaming. I consider the Dreamcast the last retro game console. Otherwise, good thing I had to probably try to collect some of these different multicolored Xboxes at some point. I know. I know. It, it's uh, it's one of those things that okay, once you start collecting hardware variants, now you're in trouble. Especially, oh. especially up to this day when you see like the you know the Sony PS4 Star Wars Darth Vader edition stuff that comes out, and then you know then they had that what is it the 20th anniversary uh, PlayStation PS4 version that went for a ton of money. The, it's like oh my the Taco God. Bell one, you know the Taco Bell one people really really want Xbox. There was a Taco Bell Xbox. No, it's a PS4, but really basically yeah, there was a Taco Bell, and actually it looks pretty cool. And I'm not sure how you got that, but. People really, really want that. That's going to be super collectible in the future, too. Capcom Taco Bell limited edition gold PS4 console. Yep. $800 people want for it on eBay. Wow. And and it only came out, I think, last year. So, again, you know, project that into the future. Woo. Uh, Yeah, that's something I definitely, definitely want to get into. So let me ask you about where you see the, the future of retro gaming. Uh, where do you see it trending? Do you see it continuing on the path now? Do you see maybe, for example, the Xbox and the PS2 becoming more in line with what the current hot retro gaming console is? Or you see it sort of being down the same line where as well, we're going to stick with 16 and 18, excuse me, an 8-bit, and that's where it's going to stay. Well, let me tell you, Pat. Did I ever think that cassettes and VHS would be collectible? No. <laughs> are cassettes Absolutely. officially collectible now? They are officially that. collectible. So I, I, I go to a local record store because I collect vinyl. And again, 10 years ago, you couldn't give away vinyl. Now people are paying $20, $30 for new vinyl. Oh, sure. But at the same record store, they also blow out tons and tons of cassettes. It's, and, and people collect VHS, Laserdisc. The CEDs, it's just, like, amazing to me. So, you know what the answer is? Anything that is of your childhood that takes you back to that, I think, will continue to be collectible. For my dad, it was slot cars. You know, we've seen it time and time again. You know, I think what we should be doing is looking at the 16-year-olds today, or maybe the 18-year-olds today, you know, and what are they going to be nostalgic about in four or five years when they have a job and they want to buy back their childhood? Is that going to be PS2? Yeah, probably. Xbox? Sure. You know, um, I think it'll be really interesting, though, when you get to the really young, like the, the 10-year-olds who have never owned a physical thing. It's all been Steam. It's all been online and digital only. It's all been iPad and iPhone. What what are they going to do? I don't what think are, they're yeah. going to have a, not kids, gonna have a chance in hell. Kids who have who have not grown up with physical media may not have that same attachment to it. So when they, they say... Won't, they won't be they, able to. Because because it literally won't work, you know. I mean, iPhone games. I I'm sure you have iPhone games or Android games that just from a couple of years ago, because the operating system's been updated, don't run anymore. You know. Sure. Yeah, me and you have talked about, uh, and this goes for PC games as well, where people try to keep the servers online. They they try to get um, what is it with with the, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act? They try to get exclusions so that they could you know, run servers just so people can still play these games in the future. Some of these games that the ones that require a server or even this is both console and PC, uh, for example, you know, they just, they just shut off. What was it? A couple years ago, they shut off the Mario Kart Wii, um, servers. We're talking about a game that, that came out less than 10 years ago. Well, there's a version of outrun too on the Xbox 360. That is fantastic. That just got pulled because I think they lost the license to Ferrari 
And so if you happen to have downloaded it, great, good on you. But I think at this point, everyone else so, is screwed, which sucks. So kids basically can't sell their consoles or throw out their iPhones where they have these games on. And they'll never be able to play again in 20 years. That's, that's what it's going to turn into. So that's true. They're gonna get, so the <laughs> software is going to be gone, physical software, but the hardware is never going to leave. They're going to be lugging around. You know, they're going to have like 15 of their old phones. They're, they're gonna, or either that, they're going to have to go back and find on eBay. There'll be listings in 20 years maybe, you know, iPhone 4 that has Flappy Bird 1.0, rare. You know, well, that is- <laughs> uh, you, you know what, Pat? So you have the, the internet up. I'm kind of curious. Go to eBay and try to find a copy of PT on PlayStation 4 because that's exactly what you're talking about. Because so, they pulled it. They pulled the demo. They, that's right. They, they pulled it. So, but, you know, but more than that, I mean, it's like, yeah, even if it was attached to your account, you, you can't download it at all. So, because I stupidly deleted it, right? So, and it shows, it's sitting in my account it mocks me, but it won't let me download it. So are people selling PlayStation 4s with PT they're, on it? They're trying to. 350 your best offer. PlayStation 4, Jet Black, 500 gigabytes with PT. They mentioned it specifically to entice people. I don't know. It can go either way. It can go where people are like, nah, this is stupid. I don't want to worry right. about it. As long as like someone like, uh, I don't know, if, if someone like, uh, uh, was that was PT? That was Konami, right? Um, so as, as long as in the future they're like, okay, we're going to uh, re-release it ten years from now on a special. Maybe they'll have a special Dead Games Edition disc. With you know what I mean? Like <laughs> maybe they'll do something like that. They'll have these re-releases come out where you can play all these games in the future, company well, by company. I don't know. Okay, so that is perfect segue into limited run games. This is oh. why, <laughs> no matter what you think of limited run games, I happen to really like what they do. Um, that, that that they're doing the Lord's work. They're trying, you know, th- through their system of limited. Press, you know, printing of this stuff is to put these games on physical. You know, they have to be the full versions, the patch versions. There you go. Put it on your shelf. You own it for real. Sure, I, I agree with with it in theory. I just wish they made enough to so everyone who wants one can get one. I but wish it. That I wish be limited. <laughs> no, but if 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 <laughs> I see you see it can still That's be li- it can still be limited if they sell more after the fact. It'll just stop selling when people don't no, no, want no. them anymore. So, I mean. Here's what they should do. I have a solution. Do you want to hear it? On demand? No. Okay. It, they need to do – so vinyl records have solved this problem. And vinyl records is the same thing. So I don't, you don't probably don't collect records, do you? Ian does. I don't. Okay. So every year they have Record Store Day. And that one day of the year, they have a bunch of exclusive, limited pressings of, of albums. And they do hundreds of them, sometimes by big – you know, the Rolling Stones and Nine Inch Nails and David Bowie and all this stuff, Prince – and what they do, though, is that that is the limited run. And then after that, so it'll be colored vinyl. It'll be a cover that is somewhat special. It is a true limited version of that. That, But if you actually want to listen to the music, throughout the rest of the year, they typically print them off, but they're in the normal black vinyl. Oh, sure. Some sort of alt. That's what limited run should do. They should go to the market where, it's quote, unquote, there's a limited edition of it, but we'll still make more if you want them. The because- only... Th- yeah. The only thing I would say, though, is that, you know, Doug and those guys who, who by the way, Limited Run is only a two-person company. So, and they, and I, I know Doug. And so the way that Limited Run works is that they actually put up their own money. All of the risk for every single release is on them. And initially, they were doing that, like, basically on credit cards. And so they need to make sure that these things sell out. That's the reason why the, the numbers go up and down and stuff. Anyways, and so... What do you think would happen though if it wasn't limited anymore? What? How much do they put up? If if I was to ask you, 
you know, to put up some indie game. And by the way, you're going to have to go get a bank loan. And how many copies of this game are you going to buy? Well, I don't know. Well, how many do you think you're going to sell? But they have a track record now. They've put they out do. enough. They put out enough games where they know. Okay, if we do this many pre-orders, we know this is how many it's going to sell in a certain amount of time. Now it's less of a risk, and now they have capital to play with. So I think at this point, I'm not saying uh, you. At some point, you have to grow the business, and I don't know the guys. Ian knows them. Uh, I'm not. I'm not criticizing them on you know directly because I know what it takes to again risking your own money to do this. But I think. Now is a time where if they want to take this to the next level, they have to appease a, a larger customer base. You know, you yeah. have, at, some, at some point, you have, to, you have to take calculated business risks. Well, let me ask this. you this. And, and I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing. I'm just trying to illustrate the, the, how difficult the problem is. Let's say this. So you know that they're going to be doing Night Trap, okay? Yeah, sure. But let's say Pat is going to release a limited run of Night Trap, okay? And you're going to pay for it, okay? Tell me how many copies you should make. You, so, have to do, you do a pre-order, uh, pre-order setup, right? So you at least are going to sell that many. Right. I, I'm not sure how early in advance – how early in advance do they usually do their pre-orders or do they not do them that, that often? I don't, I don't think they do pre-orders at all. I think they basically just say, hey, we're going to sell this game on twice on Friday. Well that's, well, that's an issue to me then because that's one of the reasons why, for example, on my DVDs and my book – I had to use not just for promotion, but the reason you use Kickstarter or Indiegogo is because so you can gauge interest for how many to produce. The you other know, thing, yeah. So, so, so for example, if, for example, if Night Trap, if I know in the past I sold a certain amount of game that's not as popular as Night Trap, okay, that doesn't have the cachet of it, and Night Trap is now in in the mainstream. I cover in the podcast. This is a game that people are going to want to get. I I would probably want to get a version of this in some capacity, basically because. For example, when I play it on a modern, you know, PS4 or Xbox One, or if it ever comes out in the PC, it's going to look a hell of a lot better than it did in the early '90s on the crusty old Sega CD technology. Yeah, the, the trailer actually looks pretty clean. It looks clean. They, they went back and got the management. Remember, there's remember there's a failed Kickstarter to remake it a few years ago, and actually, me and Ian kind of criticized it because we're like, they don't really have to put that much money in order to reproduce this. You know, they have all the assets. You know, they have all the video file. They just got to get some some company to you know to put this on disc and get it out there again, which is what basically has happened a couple years later without a Kickstarter. So this is what my advice: you have to do pre-orders. You absolutely have to do that. But then at some at some point though, you also have to realize that the more you produce, the cheaper they are to you overall, and that's for any media. I, I th- there's one piece to this. I, I just I'm again, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here. I have no. No, no, I've, I have no stake in limited run or anything. But uh, the other thing is, because I've thought a lot about this as well, is that while Night Trap will probably sell fairly well, how many limited run releases do you think sell simply because it is limited? Like we see people buying every single Vita release that comes out, regardless of even they played or if it's good or not. Well, this gets into the issue I see, though, that people don't like the scalping market that's, uh, that's arisen with limited run. Um, that there are people that are getting into it just as they think it's going to go up in value in the future versus actually wanting to play it. So yeah. these are things that, unfortunately, scalpers help limited run games because it makes sure they sell out of certain titles, but it, uh, it pisses off people that actually just want it just to have one to play. They're not going to worry about their Star Trek collector's play. It's going to go up in value in 10 years. So these are things that they have to play with, obviously. Yeah, and they've tried to battle that a little bit, I know, by trying to limit the number of people and and. I'm sure they probably look at IP addresses and things like that to try to control it. But, but anyways, yeah. It's hey, just a, hey, you want to bring me on as an investor? I'll I'll be involved with these guys. Why not? I'll I'll go <laughs> no, in. I, 
I, I, I don't, uh, I don't have any pull like that. I just okay, simply... <laughs> I, uh, you know, there's, there's. I'm not saying there's not money to be made. All I know is that you know they can a pre-order system. I think is necessary. Otherwise, if I did a certain NES guidebook and I didn't do a pre-order, <laughs> how would I have to work it in every podcast? How would I know how many to have made if I didn't at least gauge, you know, preliminary interest? There'd be no way. It's a shot in the dark yeah, at that point. Yeah. And again, and if I only, you know, if I, if I, if I printed uh, 300 versus the, the, you know, thousands, then the cost goes up per book, you know, for everyone and for myself. So, and I know at the end of the day, all, most of the money here is in obviously licensing it versus the actual media production. That's the lower end cost as well. Um, so at that point, it's just the risk of, okay, if I produce 5,000 versus 3,000, can I move that extra 2,000 and what's my extra cost per disc? That, that's what it comes down to. And if I have to hold on to them for a couple of years, maybe that's what has to happen or maybe do sales every now and then. I want to talk to, now I want to talk to these guys. I want to help them out. I honestly do. You, you know, it, it would be interesting if they went the sort of indie box route where basically they're like, well, you know what, uh, 40, 60 bucks a month. You just get every release, you know, whatever, whatever makes sense. I don't know if it'd be 60 bucks a month, maybe a hundred dollars a month, but it would be interesting if they basically just went, you know what, you're going to get the, the latest and greatest PlayStation four Vita release. Here you go. Or choose whatever format you want. And yeah. Or maybe they can do that with some of the overstock or they go, we'll do a package deal. It's yeah. out, you know, we're not going to say we have any left, but six months from now or a year from now, we have a limited number left and we'll bundle them together. And that way we make our money back and people out there that didn't get a chance to buy it. They can also buy it. And that, you know. and that's why I thought the again, Vinyl Records has fixed has already resolved this, and that is having a truly limited version of it. And the limited, the limited want, version. <laughs> and, and if you want to play it, right, then that's when you buy it two weeks later. But it's it's a different box or something like that. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna make this a public statement. Limited run games. I want to help you guys out. I'm not saying you got to bring me on as a partner directly, but I'll I'll work this out with you guys. I'll I'll be a consultant. I'll be I'll be a consultant for you guys because I want everyone to have the games they want, especially for newer titles. Um, and I think it's a great and it's great for preservation, like you said, because at the very least we're going to have a nice uh, backlog of these games, at least in a physical version, in oh, the yeah. future twenty years from now that'll still exist. Yeah, but, it, it, it's amazing how many Vita games I have now because of them. Like it's like you know it's awesome, and it keeps the console alive longer than maybe. Yep. It traditionally would have been at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. So, so maybe we'll see limited run Super Nintendo and Nintendo games in, in the future. I get the feeling that Nintendo doesn't want to work with anybody like that no, for some reason, and they I do not. I don't understand it because so you know I, I mean like the Switch, like I own a Switch. I'd love to get um, physical copies of some of these games. You know, like like uh, Wonder Boy. You know, Dragon's Trap. I'd love to have a physical version. To sit on my shelf of that, it would be killer. Well, it's it's more of a cost in production, obviously delivery, mailing. It's it's just too much of a headache. I mean, hell, we saw Nintendo, you know, give up to me hundreds of millions of potential profit in the NES Classic Edition because it's it's not worth the trouble for them for, right. for for a variety of reasons versus just offering on virtual console and and in their minds, hopefully making that money back, which they never will, but that in their mind is worth it. You know, versus dealing with, oh, we got to make our 3DSs still and the Switch and the NES Classic Edition. We don't need that. It's not worth it. And that's probably how they think. And that's why ladies companies in general will be like, okay, yeah, we're fine with, we're fine with you guys producing 500 or 1,000 copies of, uh, what's this, Octodad Deadliest Catch for PS4. But, you know, we don't want to put you know, 100,000 out there because it's not worth the risk to us. But we're going we're gonna to let Limited Run take the risk, though. They'll take yeah. the risk, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. So. I mean, again, why not? But 
for some reason, Nintendo just is not interested in that stuff. Well, they're a very conservative, old school, maybe even say (laughs) backwards company, which is funny because their products aren't backwards. They take risks. But in terms of actual business decisions, they don't like taking those risks. But, you know, hey, what are you going to do with that Nintendo, right? Hey, what are you going to do? (laughs) Hopefully keep finding their stuff, (laughs) their old stuff. Man, you got to make it down to San Diego one day. You got to take a look at my my PC game collection, see what I have. Maybe Maybe we work out a trade. Dude, one of one of my favorite videos on your channel is like this multi-part uh, <laughs> crate dig through your through your collection. Like it was scary oh, and awesome at the same time. Did I like, get did I get backlash after that? Because some people didn't realize that I was putting on partially an act saying, "Oh, I don't care about this," or "Well, I don't even know what this is." I know what all this stuff is. You know, that was technically a Pat the NES Punk video. People don't know Ian was behind the camera and he hated me because that was like a five-hour shoot going through oh. all my stuff. I, I was, had, like, shocked. Go. I was, like, holy crap. Like, yeah, if you, if you ever die, I hope they give me a call because I just want to <laughs> dig through all your crap. Do you, want me, do, you want, do you want me to put you in my will? You get first, sure. first crack at all my key punch software games that are regional. You know what's funny about the key punch software? I'll have, to, I'll have to, like, text you a picture of a bunch of it just to get an idea of it. Is that this This is something I would never would have thought of again until I realized it existed. And then I, I, I saw someone, I think it was, like, Classic Game Expo 2012. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. His name is Eli. He runs like Eli Software Encyclopedia. Hmm. And he has just a ton of new old stock. Maybe not anymore, but this is to illustrate my point. A ton of new old stock uh, games up to like the, the early 90s. We're talking, you know, regional stuff like Key Punch. We're talking, you know, um, I think I remember buying Zork 1 off of him, Infocon, sealed in box for like $15, $20 in 2012. We're talking, you know, all those nice Taito, uh, you know, the, the ones that like record albums, they were very thin, you know, mm-hmm. square. All these, he had them all sealed. And so it was cool. He sent me a bunch of these key punch software. Like he sent me like 50 or 60 different ones. He just wanted, you know, a little bit of advertising. He didn't want any money for it. You know, because he probably realized that no one else cares about this stuff. No one right. else is interested in it. Here's a guy that actually appreciates the stuff. He remembers it than being in his old, you know, B. Dalton bookstore computer, you know, game section in 1986. You know, like <laughs> like who else is going to remember this besides some some you know crazy guy on the internet? Um, wow. So, yeah. Uh, I don't it, know if he's I don't know if he's still around or still sells it, but yeah, he he might have thousands of old games still. Now everyone's going to look him up after listening to this podcast and try to get this software from him. You know. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, that's the thing. People are still out there. It's funny you mention that. There's a guy who goes to all this, the local Seattle expos, and um, he's kind of an, an, a buttoned-up uh, older gentleman, gray hair, looks like an engineer, and that's because he, he's an ex-Boeing like, engineer. But anyways, um, you know, I, I see him all the time, and I've kind of introduced myself, bumped into him or whatever, you know. And then later I learn that he has got one of the biggest collections uh, in the world, and he basically has an airplane hangar somewhere in Seattle that it's, like, just packed to the rafters. But he's not interested in sharing it. I mean, it, it was – I was told that because – you know, it was one of those sort of like hush hush. He's not really flashy. He's not. He's just. He's just buying stuff that he wants for his little collector, a big collection, and 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 people are every time you know he goes to these, people are just dying to know like what sort of mysteries does he have in this airplane hangar? It's like I don't know. So they're out there. 
Oh, yeah, that's like, uh, I don't know if you followed the story of Tim Atwood last year, in terms of NES and SNES collecting, a guy who had literally thousands of sealed NES games, multiples of extremely hard-to-find games, like stadium events. He still owns a sealed shipping box, which means there's six sealed stadium events inside of those. (laughs) Now, each one of those, if they sold separately without knowledge that there were others existing, he could get maybe 30000 each for those. If you can, if you can find collectors that are willing to drop that, but the last seal one went for probably around that mark, if not wow. more. So, but he has tons of these. Like, so, like I said, these people are out there. They're not like us that do YouTube videos. They're not people that are you know braggarts or want to show off their collection. They just like their collection. They like going out to their bar, yeah. or like you said, their hangar, and taking a look at it and just appreciating yeah. for what it is. At some yeah. point, though, it'd be nice to, get, to have others be able to enjoy them at all, uh, as well, via museum, donation. And that's yeah. where I'm getting to with my, at least my console collection, is that I'm at the stage now where it's cluttered. You saw from that collection video, and that was almost five years ago, and now it's worse than that. I, I need to move into a bigger place. But at some point, what good does it really do for me to own all these rare, sometimes almost one-of-a-kind items if I'm the only one that's experiencing it? Yeah, you know, like, and actually, that's where i Yeah, and, and John Hancock's the same way. You know, people are like, you know, is he a hoarder? No, actually, he's, you know, one, he's been collecting since the early 90s. And so that's, you know, because he always gets, are you a hoarder? Are you rich? And the answer to that is no. He's not rich. He's a you know, he's a teacher. <laughs> but but his his thing is that he wants to do a um, a museum as well. And I you know that would be amazing. Like that would be awesome. And he wants to do it in his local little town, you know. And he wants to be the curator for it. And man, it'd be killer. It's like that's what it should be. You know, people can go pay a couple bucks, keep it so it's maintained, and just see this stuff would be it'd be awesome. Ah, that's the future. All of us are going to have our nice little regional museums that we're just going to, you know, pay pay four bucks, come come on in, play, you know, play the consoles, you know, sample all the games, take a look at all the rare antiquities behind glass. That's where we're going to that we're going to look out for that. So you're going to opening up your big box PC collection and museum in 2028. We're looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, it's it, it. I got to say, sitting in my game room, sitting on the couch, you know, kicking back, looking at it. it it's it is that awesome feeling that you know I've never. It's it's just like a dream, you know what I mean? It's like okay, this is this is pretty cool to be here. I got my turntable, got my Def Leppard albums. I'm set. <laughs> I think that's where I get more enjoyment now. Where like everyone who wants to come over and take a look at it who hasn't. For example, you know I've had guests over you know, YouTubers like uh, Apid Alley, for example, who's very funny. Someone like Andre Meadows, Black New York Comedy. Like, oh, I want to see the game room. To me, it's like it doesn't matter. I don't like coming here and looking at stuff. But to them who haven't experienced it, they haven't, you know, pieced it together over 20-plus years. To them, it's a it's an accomplishment. It's something to gawk at. For me, it's just like gathering dust now. You know, it's, it's hard. It's, let's just say, put it this way. It's hard to keep it fresh. It's like keeping a marriage fresh. You know, it's like how do you keep it fresh that I own all these things where you can almost get overwhelmed by the, the just the vast quantity of it? Where it's just you know, like, you know, you know what I'm hearing, Pat. What? I'm hearing a massive sell-off. Is what this is. Oh, interesting. Uh, you, now you want to, Now you want to take a trip to San Diego. Is that what it is? <laughs> Dude, I love San Diego, man. It's like uh, my wife goes down every year for a, re- a real estate convention. Oh, nice. And sometimes I go with her. And fantastic city. We love it there. Oh. Best best uh, fish tacos in the world. Oh, okay. You got to come to South Beach if you're in, in San Diego. South Beach Bar and Grill. Best fish, fish tacos in in the city, in my opinion. Best nachos I ever had. Carne asado na- uh, nachos that are piled hmm. high. And now I'm starving. 
All right. Well, you gotta let me know when you're down here. You know, if you make it out to a convention, yeah. um, I gotta get up there for the, for the uh, something in Seattle again. I haven't been up in Seattle since yeah that PAX Prime six years ago, and I always miss out. When's the when's the uh, Seattle Retro Gaming Expo? When that when is that usually? Coming soon. It's in June, and I don't know the date, but uh, it's like SeattleRetro.org, I believe. Um, Seattle Retro is interesting. It's 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 been in transition in the last couple of years, and so. Um, I would say it, it's hard for me to recommend you come up just for that because, like I said, it's going. It went through a bit of an ownership change. It's been changing a lot of locations. It's been going through some growing pains, and so um, you know, obviously, come to Seattle for our beautiful city and <laughs> retro gaming, and go take your picture. You know, go have your picture taken at Nintendo and all that stuff. But um, yeah. The, the thing is, the thing is for us too is that Portland is so awesome. The Portland Retro Gaming Expo is hard to beat. Portland is so great seeing it grow from, you know, I was like one of the first quote unquote YouTube guests there that first year. I think um, I went to your talk. Uh, do you remember how this the sweat dripping off of me? It, you can, <laughs> That's right because they had the air conditioning was terrible because it was in the double tree, right? It was underneath the parking garage. Yeah, I don't, the there, I don't think there was air conditioning. It was just fans no. running, and it was unseasonably hot for what October. It was like ninety degrees plus. With what was there like hundreds of people packed into that little location? Yeah, and like if you go back and it's probably online where you can see me talk. I have like a paper towel next to me or napkins. I'm constantly. <laughs> I mean, I'm seriously dripping sweat. But it was, yeah. but it was a ball. Though. It was a blast. That was one of my first. Uh, it was one of my first panels I ever had ever done. It was probably my third. Uh, third or fourth, because I'd gone to I think my first Magfest before that. I think it, it, it made 2010 or 11, and I'd done SGC 2010. So I'm always going to be loyal to to them. They're great. They took a chance on me, had me out. It was hopefully entertaining. They had that kid who always uh, antagonizes me. Now I see him grow up year after year. You know what I'm talking about. Every year at my panel, Portland, he'll like he'll like talk trash at me, and it's become the tradition. I see him growing up from when he was like eight years old. Now he's like in high school. It's so weird. Uh, but no, uh, I guess that the north, the northwest was always ahead of the curve when it came to retro gaming. It seemed like it was one of those areas that was ahead of the curve. Was always, you know, maybe yeah. it's because of the geeky culture, counterculture sort of feeling of you know Portland and maybe to a lesser extent Seattle. It, it really gelled there um, well, versus other we, parts. We, and we have three hundred game development studios here. Oh, that helps too. <laughs> Yeah, and, and so, and you know, and Nintendo's been here since the 80s, Microsoft and all that stuff. But, yeah, I mean, Wargaming.net, if you play World of Tanks, here, you know. I mean, tons of people play that game, and it, the list goes on and on and on. PopCap and all that stuff are all here. So mobile games, um, yeah, it's pretty – so you're right. It's like we are video game culture here for sure. Yeah, in San Diego, you just have, I think, one of the rock star divisions is in San Diego, quietly. Um, yeah, Rockstar San Diego. And then other than that, I think you have – Mad Cats, who I think are just shutting down finally after all these years. I believe Mad Cats are going out of business. Oh, the the, uh, the controller maker. Yeah, they're in San Diego. But I think they're finally done. Wow. Or, yeah, that sucks. Uh, but so that's really the San Diego video game development scene. Is that and Pat and Pat? <laughs> oh, and Mega yes. and Mega sixty four. Good old Mega sixty four. I always say San Diego YouTubers. It's Mega sixty four on top, and you have me swimming on the bottom, and that's really all the ones I know off the top of my head. When it comes to gaming YouTubers, but you sound like every other block you have a you have someone nice that you can hang out with, reminisce, and and make great uh, YouTube videos of. Well, this this was fun, Jason. This is fantastic. We definitely need to talk more in the future. Find a reason to uh, 
get together at some point as well. Hopefully this year at Portland, if I'm back, um, it won't be me trying to just sell a certain NES guidebook the whole weekend and and literally <laughs> literally deliver a ton of books uh, there and set them up. Maybe I can actually relax this year a bit and hang out like I used to be able to years you know years back before it became. Oh, now it's my business. I have to you know basically take it 100 percent seriously. I I need to work in the sort of leisurely side of it again, like I used to be able to you know walk around and actually buy you know big box PC software and handheld games and stuff like that. Well, yeah, that I, I I can relate to because I I would not want to go to an expo being a collector and want to have to quote unquote work it because I can imagine that's you know that, that's not what you want to do there. Although I will say uh, I do absolutely love your book. Uh, it is super high quality. It's amazing. Um, it's funny because I was listening to the the podcast episode with that you did with Mark from Classic Game Room, and he couldn't shut up about it because he loved it so much. And I was like, I know it's like impressive. You know, and to that point. I will say, I know you get shit for pimping it in your videos and the podcast. Don't apologize for that shit because because it's good. It's really good. You did a great job, and you should be proud. Oh, I appreciate that. Maybe we can work on a you know a, a big box PC book at some point. We can take oh, pictures and do. I, don't tease me, bro. <laughs> hey, why not? You know, I have had I've had multiple people talk about whatever wanted to do a book. Uh, about whether it's toys or arcade machines or Atari, and I'm like, it's a lot of work. But I think if you if you commit yourself to doing it, you'll you'll, you'll find it's really cool to get through it. And I think people will appreciate it. Yeah, you know, I didn't know not not talk about the book too much, uh, but I really did not know if I'd sell a hundred copies or two hundred. I had no idea people were interested in a book like that. I just didn't know until I I took the risk and did it. You know, then did the Kickstarter and say, "Oh wow, I, I met the goal in 24 hours." Okay, there's an interest here. I just didn't realize it. So, fortunately, you know, physical media for books isn't isn't dead yet. You know, it, it's not like oh, we all just want to look at Kindles and iPads. There's something about something about holding a physical book. I don't think that's ever going to go away. And now I'm kind of curious um, how how is the app done for you? Because I mean, that's a whole of the beast, right? The the app I actually have not actively promoted the app as much as I should have because. There's still little bugs here and there to work out, and it's still not to my standards in terms of... I mean, it works great, but there's little features that are not yet 100% functional that I want to get in there before I really tell the world. For example, I haven't even told my the original Kickstarter backers of the book, and that was like 2,000 people, about the app. And that's obviously mm. the prime audience. The app is doing okay. It's still selling every day, but it's a different world, obviously. Yeah. Like it's, it's a lot harder to push an app um, not everyone wants an app. It's more of a collector's guide versus a reference guy like the book is. You know, so it's it's, it's a different product entirely. But no, it's doing okay. Yeah. I'm not complaining. I'm just kind of curious because I can imagine the amount of work because you probably had to pay somebody to make that for you, obviously. Uh, yeah, sure. We have a revenue split, so it works out like that. You know, where okay. so like obviously the app can't be done without someone developing it, but it can't be done without me putting years into getting all the information from the, from the book. You know, so and, and plus we both worked on the design together, and you know, and obviously, after you do iteration after iteration, you discover, oh well, we don't have these arrows to quickly navigate from one collection screen from one game to the next. That's something we should put in. So it, it, it's more of an evolution. I guess that's what game game design is. What you know more more about the meat is like, it's an evolution where you don't think about these things until you actually see it in front of your face and realize, oh, it might be easier if we insert this function, or it'll be easier for the user if we do that. So it's definitely an interesting world. Uh, to get into, I wouldn't mind doing another type of app, or maybe even doing a game at some point 
you know, on the development side with maybe write the story, but it's definitely different than doing YouTube videos. And it's definitely even different than doing a book. Definitely. Yeah. I, well, I, I, I know cause in the, uh, the real estate technology company that I worked at, we did, a, we did an app and we also did all of our websites and stuff like that. And so I know a bit about the difficulties of doing that just on smartphones alone on the Android side. Oh, nightmare. It's a nightmare, and people have no idea that, that there are literally like a hundred versions of Android, and you know, and and so people people beat us up because we would do iOS versions first. We'd be like, yeah, because we only have to do three, you know. Oh, sure, we did. So I imagine, yeah, we only did actually. We did, I think, one iOS to start. We're going to do an optimized iPad version at some point. But yeah, people were, were waiting on the Android version, and it was like a month later. And then the update. Um, there's like issues with different types of phones where there's memory leaks on a certain Samsung phone. So it would crash after using for a few minutes. And we, we've started all out now, but it's definitely gone a lot slower than I imagined. And even the developer imagined, because I don't think, you know, some of these issues until you test them on specific phones. It's, it's just nuts. So for everyone out there developing (laughs) apps, uh, my heart's out to you, at least on the Android side. And now I know why probably Nintendo took time to, to you know, for the Android one to come out uh, for, for uh, Super Mario Run yeah. versus the iOS. You know, it's not, oh, not absolutely. just time exclusivity. They had to test this all on multiple types of phones, and you've got to make it backwards compatible to a certain, uh, certain OS on the Android side. It's just, oh, my God. It's just... <laughs> yeah, I was curious how that was going, so that's why I asked. Uh, I, I, I'll get you. Cool. Do you have Android or iOS? Uh, iOS. You do. It, it's almost. It's almost like I want to give people the iOS codes, but unfortunately, when you give someone a download code for the iOS version, you can't update it. I don't think. I, Android, you can oh. update it. So, like, if I gave you an iOS code, I'd have to seek out everyone again and give them another code for the next version of the app when it's out. They, well, how how pimp your app? How much is? Oh, it's four ninety nine. Okay. Well, that that is completely reasonable. So yeah, okay, you know cool. what? I've had maybe two people complain and leave comments that oh, this should be cheaper, and I'm like, ah, I think I'm okay with it because if I have two complaints out of you know, I don't know how many people have downloaded so far, uh, a thousand, something like that, maybe a little less. Two out of that, it's not bad. And when when I show it in, when I show it off in person at panels and I tell people the price, people are like, oh, that's pretty good. They they expect it to be higher price, which you know, fine, or I'll raise it to eight ninety nine. Why not? You, you know what? I, I don't. I don't get that mentality because people will pay four ninety nine for a, you know that mocha, that unicorn mocha thing at Starbucks. Maybe it's even more than five dollars. They suck it down in ten minutes, get a sugar high, and then they're on their. You know what I mean? It's like, and this is an app that people can use for. Well, retro gamers in general are known to be a little more stingier than Starbucks drinkers. No, so believe no. it or not, I'm not. I don't get insulted by that. But the last when I was at Retropalooza Houston, someone insulted me by complaining about the price of the book right to my face he said like "Ooh, yeesh and i was just like serious i i I didn't i don't like to call people out when i do that but i feel like saying though do you know what goes into not just making the book but the cost of producing books of this size yeah (laughs) i feel like saying do you remember textbooks when you were in college and how they cost oh, one hundred and fifty dollars, well, you know, or more, three hundred now for some. Yeah. So I mean, I think I'm happy with keeping the price point fifty nine ninety nine for a book that's four hundred and forty pages. That's you know nine by twelve hardcover, and and no one picks it up and says this is a cheap book or this is not made well. No one says that, you know. So I, no, I think it's the biggest book I've ever owned. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean. It, 
the only thing you can equate it to is like the the phone book for all of Seattle and Puget Sound. You know what I mean? That's the only thing that we come close to it. Now, phone books for those out there used to be these big yellow things that you would look up phone numbers. They, they, they would throw it at your door and you'd trip over it as you walked in, you know, with, <laughs> trying to get They home. still deliver them to San Diego. You get one every year or two. I'm just like, do people need these anymore at this point? We, we, we banned them in Seattle. Did you really? Well, you guys are ahead yeah. of the curve when it comes to environmentalism. You guys were recycling like in the 70s probably. But, um, but yeah. yeah, it's just like I'm thinking about all the waste, not just for like the trees. And I'm not even concerned about that. The waste and just time and money to get all this stuff made and put out there when everything's online now. It's just – yeah. So like whenever I get my phone books in the past, I would just throw them on top of the, top of the refrigerator – and then, like, they would pile up. I'd have, like, eight of them before I just toss them into the recycler. <laughs> you know, it was just bad. But anyway, yeah, the, the, the book is great. And one of the reasons why I think I wanted, wanted to do the superintendent book is that I think now people enjoyed this, this one. Besides, there, I know there's a market for there. I think people, retro gamers, deserve the same quality for the Super Nintendo at least. So I think, like, I, think I can have the opportunity to deliver at least on that as well. So that's why I want to do that. Yeah, I, I think that's a good idea. Also, too, that, that gets back to the NES Mini is that, you know, I didn't get an uh, NES Mini because for me, I don't have a lot of nostalgia for that. And also, too, I I don't think that the games hold up quite as well as, say, the Super Nintendo. I think the Super Nintendo today, those games are still fun, still look great. And uh, that's my system for Nintendo that I, I like to collect for. And so... I think if you're thinking, you know, if Nintendo's sitting there thinking, yes, a Super Nintendo Mini is a good idea, yes, it's a good idea, your book would also be a good idea for that, too. Because I just think that it's going to have longer longevity. Longer longevity. Are you, saying, are you saying the NES hasn't had longevity? Is that what saying? I'm saying that I like to play Excite uh, Okay. <laughs> but you like to play F-Zero more. Is that what you're uh, Well, you know, Super Metroid, that's the game. Yeah, yeah I think it always comes down to when you say games hold up versus if a game is well designed to me, it's timeless. So legend of Zelda to me, I enjoy legend of Zelda more than link to the past. I honestly do. Maybe it's the simplicity. Mm. Maybe I remember when my father brought it home from, you know, um, was that kitty city? Lionel kitty city in New Jersey to me that I just still enjoy that. I can go back and play that. Maybe it's something to be said for the simplicity of some of the games. Uh, well, and compared the final fantasy games that were on the NES to the super Nintendo. I mean, Final Fantasy three on Super Nintendo, I guess it's six or whatever that is. That is an amazing looking game, and it's just it's more complex. It still has the grinding, but it, I definitely prefer that over the the simplistic RPGs that are on the NES, the the Dragon Warriors. I can't get into them quite as much. I just, sure, I mean, it, I think it also varies by genre. So, for example, I'm looking at right now a, a five star game according to a certain NES guidebook, uh, a shooter, Gun Nat. I'd mm. put that up against. Any shooter on the Super Nintendo, and you you would be hard pressed to say this game is that much worse than the best Super Nintendo shooter, you know. So well, so I, I th- so you're talking about shooters though. You have to move to the Genesis. Let's be honest. Okay, yes. <laughs> Compare the Super Nintendo. Yes, the Genesis has a lot better shooters, or obviously the TurboGrafx-16. But I'm just saying that I think it's harder to compare. I think it's more by generation versus even console, because a lot of the later mm-hmm. NES games look really good. Mr. Gimmick is is an outstanding game. And you wonder how they made that on an 8-bit console, for example. Hmm. A game I did a review of uh, about four or five years ago. I remember that review. You, oh, wow. All right. You, I do. You, you, you watch some of the old school Pat the NES Punk reviews. People, Dude, you know, speaking of old school, okay. Let's do this before we wrap this up. I've been dying to know. 
that porn star video. She, she was not a porn star. She was a dominatrix. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, so she didn't have sex on camera. I, my bad. I'm sorry. I, I, I don't. Well, I didn't know. she, she, I just... she might have done some things in other works, but at the time, she was a working dominatrix and one of the one of the nicest people I ever met. By the way. Besides, besides putting up for me, and I paid her not that much to appear in that video versus her regular hourly wage just to act. And so she was, a, she was such a super sport. I wish I still kept up with her. So tell me, so I think that, that video is hilarious that you even attempted to go there. Like, and by the way, I'm not judging you in any way because, you know, back in the crazy days of early YouTube, you're probably thinking, thumbnail. Woo-hoo! Oh, that, that's one of my better <laughs> videos. Unfortunately, it's, it's been... A block for monetization for, I guess, sexual content, even though there's no real nudity. It's like, yeah, it's not really a battle I feel like fighting anymore. You know, it's like, yeah, whatever. That's a lot of my earlier videos. You know, there's, I use more copyrighted music that got, you know, like, so you, as you grow as a YouTuber, you learn not to do these things as much. Right, right. But what was your thinking for that? Was it simply just to have like the sexy girl as the, you know, as, as the carrot? You always think about that, of course, for marketing, and Ian always gives me signs of disapproval when I bring up that video, uh, which was. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know if it's a you know, touchy. No, it's not a touchy subject at all. Uh, to me, I'm just I'm just saying that Ian's like disapproval of that video. Whenever he <laughs> say it, but he's like, "Come on, Pat, really? Are you are you better than that?" And I'm like, "No, I'm not better than that." No, but my feeling was this. My feeling was, you know, he's the name of the character is Pat the NES Punk, right? If he's gonna tr- if he's going to review a Genesis game. You know, the most extreme thing he can think of doing in terms of outside the box, in terms of what would he be least likely to ever do, it would have to be under extreme duress. So why not under (laughs) the duress of a hot dominatrix forcing him to do that with a whip? You know, like... And so... And so you as a young YouTuber were like, huh, how much money do I need to go get the sexiest woman possible that will (laughs) essentially take off her clothes? She was not paid enough. (laughs) <laughs> you know what's funny funny I'm, about that was she actually had a, a dominatrix gig later that night and so she wasn't running late but um you know i paid her a little bit more than because i think I, I i only had her booked for an hour to shoot everything and obviously my expectations my my at the time it probably went closer to two just because you know right. i got better as i went along directing people to know how much time it actually will take i was better at setting up shots and knowing the shots i wanted beforehand with other people so it ran like two hours i basically paid her for an hour and like 15 of her time she basically just charged me here like regular you know wages for dominatrix stuff i mean well how is she gonna do it probably a little bit less because she realized i wasn't you know i wasn't touching her she wasn't touching me yeah you know yeah, at right. least what was in the script she did spank me but that was part of the script you know so I, I, Man. I, I unfortunately learned some things about myself. Like, like, like I didn't mind getting spanked in the making of that video. <laughs> but then again, it was hard to walk the next day because we did that. See, we, we did that. You, take that you're learning. Times. Yeah, Pat, you're learning and growing. I always wonder when I do those videos. Like, would I do that video now? A days. What it's 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 you know the difference between I guess you know the videos that you do for by and large you know they're not going to be scripted in terms of storyline versus something like me and so I I actually don't want to go back and watch videos I made four five six years ago because I think my judgment is better and also in terms of development as a writer have changed so it's like oh my god I can't believe I even made that joke or that didn't hit the mark or. This video is like like that Mr. Gimmick video is long, and and, and I made that video. I edited that video in about twenty four hours before. Honestly, I left before Portland Retro Gaming Expo. That's where I premiered that video. 
Uh, you, so you saw that in person if you're at my panel. But that video nowadays would not be an 18-minute video. I probably would cut it down to about 14 or 13. I'd cut out like 20%, 30% know, and just make the points in a more quicker, succinct way and not kill myself. Right. You know what I mean? So, yep, yep. But, so would I have gone back and done that video with the Dominatrix? Yeah, maybe. I probably would have cut it down a lot. Uh, you know, and maybe so. It, it does. It, it does take a while to get to the hot lady. I got to be honest. Watching it today, I'm like, man, I'm skimming. What the hell? Where is? Where? Oh, okay. She's way at the end. <laughs> oh, in terms of the striptease, yeah. It's uh, you know. Well, of course, as I'm looking for. Hello. All right. So now we know what videos that you want me to do in the future. You want me to get? Uh, well, I've had females in other videos before and after that. You know, you know, you work them in. There. I know. I'm just. Teasing I, I know. That, that, I, every time I talk to Frank, Frank's like, hey, when we, when we get some broads in this video, Pat, I'm like, oh, geez, Frank, that's all you think. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't Hollywood. Just get hot girls in all your videos. This isn't how I'm going to shoot a so sh- shoestring YouTuber budget. You know, I'm not. You know, I'm not uh, Philip DeFranco or someone getting millions of views a day. You know, I can work with it. Which I don't know if you saw this, but uh, Philip DeFranco this yesterday put out a video, basically major announcement where he's creating a news network. He's going to Patreon for that. Um, yeah, I mean, he's changed. He's changing things up quite a bit. I mean, <sighs> I think that's our YouTube world. It was interesting to see. We could, we, that, you know, if we have more time, we can talk about how YouTube's changed in general. I, uh, I'll talk about it on the podcast with Ian. I have very mixed feelings about this. I think um, because there are you know YouTube quote unquote news channels that exist, and you can say that they are successful in terms of views, but they they have their own slants on things. They probably don't have right. the same editorial process as a quote unquote tried and true. Uh, you know, mainstream media or legacy media outlet has. And it's a tricky thing once you declare yourself a news network. You have a lot more responsibility at that point, an obligation to be ethical, and you got, you got to hire the right people. And you, um, you, you, you have to trust I yourself, would, and you have to, though, be I, more... You, he, let's put it this way. He, his accountability now is 10 times greater than what, what it's going to be before if he actually gets us off the ground. Who was who was the the young lady who was part of uh, that network? It was it was like an online Facebook thing where she got fired because she was on the View talking about abortion and stuff like that. Did you? Oh, did, oh, did you oh, oh yeah, she was on. Um, uh, what's his name? She was on. What was it? The Blaze? Was it? Uh, yeah, the Blaze, and it was uh, Bill O'Reilly. Or not, no, it was it wasn't. It was uh, not Bill O'Reilly. It, I, who I know the, who runs the Blaze? The what's other, his name? Who's who's come on? Oh, uh, Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck, who's now sort of changed his mode into attacking Trump and trying to be a more dyed-in-the-wool conservative view. Yeah, she fired uh, Tommy Lauren for saying that she was okay with abortion. So the reason why I bring her up is because she is absolutely not like the traditional newscaster, right? She, she, she's very you know she's on YouTube getting millions of views, um, doing you know editorial comment, and she's absolutely very much right wing conservative, right? Uh, I mean, she, you know, that, that's her thing. So I, I think what's interesting about Philip DeFranco is that he is going to try to ride the line. He's basically saying that he's going to try getting everybody in the same room, which I think that's a challenge. My God, like that guy, I don't know if that's going to work. I think right now people, I mean, if it does great, but right now people seem to either be watching the left, you know, you're either, you're either, uh, you know the the Daily Show or your her, you know what I mean, or Fox News or something like that. It's yeah, there isn't a big audience like something like the Young Turks, Turks that that's borderline left wing that definitely is liberal. You know, like the, the, usually this is how unfortunately how we're getting to hold the conversation uh, in terms of political talk in general. 
caters towards what you want to hear. It's comfort food. Yeah. It's comfort food. Yeah. It doesn't challenge you necessarily. So if he's trying to engage in that sort of challenging sort of, okay, let's get people from all sides on, give people fair time, let's hash this out. I don't know if there's an audience for that in general, at least a, well, at least a large enough one, because I don't know if they're, if they're looking for that. So we'll, well, we'll see. I mean, PBS kind of already does this. Whether you, whatever you feel about PBS, I do feel like that they're about as fair and balanced, truly, as I think that they come. That's how I feel. McLa- the McLaughlin that. group? McLaughlin just passed away? <laughs> I used to watch that. <laughs> you know, the, and so, it'll, but, you know, look how, how successful PBS is. I mean, they, I love them, but most people, you know, seem to kind of ignore it. So we'll sort of see what happens, you know, with the Charlie Roses of the world. I mean, but anyways, and so the, the, I, I saw that announcement as some something he's going to try, and I think he's going to try to do it mostly through Patreon. And it, he's not—you can't see the numbers of how much money he's making per month on his Patreon account. Yeah, but based on the number of people, I think he's probably making a decent amount. Yeah, and that's where I think we're we're trending towards in terms of if you can get the Patreon support, it's almost like who cares about the YouTube views? You know, for example, uh, Colin Moriarty starting his own YouTube show up uh recently based solely off patreon the views are not going to support him doing that full time at this point but if he you know he has a you know tens of thousands a month on on patreon that's going to do it and if that's that's the new sort of public broadcast that's the new pbs it's almost turning into it's like let's have individuals do it so like i said i'll talk about more on the next cu podcast with ian ferguson if he wants if he wants to talk about it if if his if his guts aren't hurting him uh too much to talk about it but it's we're definitely entering sort of this new territory now when it comes to this uh, i think in general and i think people hey if people want that reasonable voice i'm all for that uh, that's all i've always tried to at least myself try to talk not maybe not down the middle but try to reason out what's actually happening and if you can if you can call out the, the goods from both sides and the hypocrisies and bads of both sides and i think then we'll see we'll see if people are open to that Maybe maybe there is a sort of silent majority out there that are wanting to do this, you know, or at least that yeah. that are want this material. Then again, you can also say, well, maybe the true the true people that are more calm and rational, they don't they don't want to seek that out because they they spend their time actually, you know, doing fruitful things and spending their energy wisely versus going on Twitter and yelling about stuff, you know. Like there's that <laughs> argument to be made as well. That's probably more like what it is, actually. But <laughs> which is how you get candidates that are usually, you know, that cater towards the yelling people versus the people that are like, you know what, I'm more reasonable. I don't think I'm going to go to a rally and just yell for four hours. I'm, I'm, you know, I have a job and a family I'd rather worry about. You know, I, I, that's just the way I usually look at things like that. Yeah, that's very true. All right. Well, it was a fruitful conversation. <laughs> I know we went all over the place. We, we had some tech issues in the, in the, on the forefront. We worked them out. But, uh, but yep. thanks so much for spending the time uh, to chat with me. Where can people find you on social media and on YouTube? Where can they hear your gaming and big box PC finds? You can find me on Metal Jesus Rocks pretty much everywhere. I was smart enough to try to get that on every piece of social media. So <laughs> YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's all Metal Jesus Rocks. No Snapchat? You stay away from that? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I do have an account on there. I don't understand it. I'm, and, that's uh, how I know I'm officially old because when people are like Snapchat, I'm just like, nope, officially old. Yeah. I don't get it. I'm, you know, sort of like back in the day, IRC and 
growing up with ICQ <laughs> and AOL Instant Messenger, or Yahoo Messenger. Oh, yeah. yeah, I was there in the forefront of that technology. Snapchat, oh, nope, yeah. I'm done. Instagram, I'm not even on board with Instagram. Twitter, Facebook, that's all I, that's all I can stand. You know, I can't even stand, I can't even deal with having an Instagram and posting to that versus Twitter versus Facebook. Just can't do it. Yeah, I'm with you. Actually, my, my two favorite are Twitter and Facebook. I like Facebook because most people are rational there, and I think it's because their mom is attached to their account. <laughs> I never... So I think that, that keeps them honest. And then I like Twitter because everything has to be condensed down to what is this actually about? I like the 140 characters. Don't give me the fluff. Don't tell me your story. Just, you know, post, post, what, post what you think. And you, you can post funny cat memes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, Jason, this was great. We'll, we'll talk again in the future and hopefully... You know, you can come down to San Diego. You can sample the great nachos I told you about, and then maybe check out my PC collection. Maybe steal a game or two. Who knows? Oh my God, I would love that, dude. All right, well, thanks for having me on your podcast, man. I appreciate it. It's awesome. Thanks again to Jason for speaking to me this week. Check him out on Twitter and YouTube at Metal Jesus Rocks. If you enjoyed the Not So Common podcast, please subscribe on your podcast platform of choice iTunes, Google Play, Podbean, Stitcher, or whatever you use to listen to them. You can rate the podcast and leave a comment to help give it a boost, and feel free to spread the word via social media to let others know how much you enjoy it. Finally, if you want to help directly support the Not So Common podcast, you can check out patreon.com slash patcountry. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.